Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo goes to Brooklyn, home of Prospect Park, Coney Island, and of course, Dem Bums. At least until 1957. But here today in 1941, they still occupy the hearts and minds of the occupants of this town with character, character that is stripped away in favor of a more cozy beat where an old house owned by the Brewster sisters stands above all as a safe haven for those in need. But no one can truly know the terror dwelling in the domicile of Abby and Martha Brewster. Sure, everyone knows Cousin Teddy is... A little off his rocker with his bugle, and they even know of the Brewster who made good as a drama cr- critic, and they even know about the troublesome Brewster boy Jonathan, the one who left home. But no one in Brooklyn is prepared for the shocking revelations one will find after a visitor indulges in some elderberry wine that will surely be their last gulp of liquid on this earth. That's right. Tonight, the Ballyhoo will be led by the assured hand of Frank Capra for a spooky and silly romp amid the macabre in 1944's Arsenic and Old Lace. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Come on, 
window seat. Yes, dear. We know. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Back in 1941, the esteemed powerhouse in directing that was Frank Capra would be compelled by financial security to tackle a film adaptation of the hit Broadway play starring Boris Karloff and Alan Joslin, but his sure hand in anything he touches was still there to make another great piece of moving picture entertainment that has reached into the very works we admire with anyone dabbling in horror or humor. Yet the production of the film is strewn with strife, whether it be the lack of Karloff in the role he made famous, the contractual delay of the film, and the latter-day regret felt in reflection by its star, Cary Grant. What is the story behind Arsenic and Old Lace, and how is the film seen amid Capra's larger works, and where do we find the film's influence in our entertainment today? Tonight, we shall have in our midst the Dr. Einstein to our Jonathan Brewster to help us solve this mystery. She is an actress and makeup artist whose work around the Denver film scene has won her recent acclaim for the short film Gone Daddy Gone and her astute work in discussing the black comedy amid Bride of Frankenstein makes her a prime candidate for tackling the lurid legacy amid the Brewster brood. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show Aaron Mullane. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. <laughs> did you appreciate all the alliteration? <laughs> I did. That was a lot of effort. Just going abound and just. I should have you write all my like intros and bios, man. I hate writing. I, I, that was great. Have you ever heard of uh, George Jessel? <laughs> Georgie Jessel was a toastmaster around old Hollywood. Oh, no. um, he was uh, he was known as the uh, the toastmaster general, as opposed to Jeff Ross, who was the yeah, roastmaster yeah, general, yeah. as we all know. Um, but yeah, no. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, you. you're Bright. A Frankenstein episode brought me so much joy to edit. You were the instigator for us kicking off the Ballyboo because that yeah. that happened after the fact, and so I was able to get two more conver or th- I was it two or three more conversations, three, three, convers- three more conversations, three more conversations. Listen to your podcast. I know <laughs> Thank you. Somebody does at last. Um, but no, yeah, you were instrumental in us kicking that off because there was that, and then I also did Dracula with Matt Willicks. Um, and then I was just I hurried to get two more, so we got Invisible Man and Thing from Another World, and uh, I I received feedback from um, uh, for people who are already tuning in at this point. You'll have already heard episodes one and two of Tour de Tati, which is the YBR presents spinoff series. But my co-host for that, Sterling Cook, said that uh, Ballyboo got him through the month. So nice, so that's exciting. A nice part of that contribution to that. But you have been busy since last gracing our microphones um what's this i hear about you starting a podcast oh i thought we were going to save this to the end but we can talk about it <laughs> in the beginning. um so i had a shower thought that's become a reality zach a shower uh, thought yeah okay all right here we go here's the backstory i was teaching a film camp last summer 
uh, age ranging literally anywhere between like nine, 10 year olds all the way up to like 17, eight year olds, mm-hmm. like pretty large gap of age. And most of these children had horrific taste in movies. And I was genuinely, I asked them, I said, why do you want to make movies? You cannot just tell me that Marvel is your favorite movie genre. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I was just like really offended and like I felt verbally assaulted. You can't hear it. I was very upset. You can't hear it, but it's literally just me getting stabbed with a slow sword when I heard the genre Marvel. (laughs) Okay, seriously, this very sweet child came up we asked all the kids at the beginning of camp what is your favorite movie and he told me transformers 2 and there was no sarcasm there was no irony it was genuinely transformers i was very upset so i went home and i thought and i thought and i thought i've been watching so many movies my entire life i'm i've always my friends have always like thought of me as their own personal imdb a little bit that's cool that's how my friends treat me too (laughs) yeah yeah that's why we have these conversations um so i just decided i'd like to join the conversation and i would like to talk about movies so um we are getting ready to start recording uh required viewing is the name of the podcast yeah um my best friend chloe and i are going to watch movies um, and then we're going to talk about them in a very opinionated sort of general chat. We're not going to do a lot of I'm going to give like a basic synopsis of the movie, but we're not going to do like as deep of dives as you do. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very surface like I want you to go watch the films. Just but say this is our opinion of the films. Yeah. So you're giving you're giving a breakdown, a brief breakdown in a in a capsule form which which I think is a great idea because you do get a chance for people to kind of get a small taste before they dive in themselves and you're doing it for the right reasons which is trying to create an education base Exactly. I think that that's edutainment is what we like to call it. I would like to contribute some edutainment to the world. And I love movies. I've seen a lot of movies. We are actually starting with some movies I have not seen. And I'm going to Mm -hmm. give your listeners like the first little deep dive into what we're doing so we're going to be doing uh birth of a nation we're starting with silent films yeah season one is cinema school we're starting at the beginning we're just going to go back because honestly if you look at it we've only really had a hundred years of cinema compared to literally thousands upon thousands of years of theater Mm -hmm. theater goes back to mesopotamia like Theater has so much more growth. So we do have like a fairly condensed knowledge of film to start with. So we're going to start with silent films and we're going to watch Birth of a Nation. The Kid, Charlie Chaplin's Kid. Yes. um, Which is a seriously incredible movie. And if you haven't watched it, please go out and watch it. Change that because it will change your life. If you don't watch... It's only 57 minutes. You can make it through that movie. If people don't watch The Kid, then they don't like me as a human being and they can get right out of my house. So thankfully, Um, welcome, Aaron, to my house. (laughs) 
Thanks for not kicking me out of your house. Um, and then we're going to finish the first episode with Ben-Hur, the original one, not Charlton Heston. 1925, baby. Well, Though I do kind of want to watch the Charlton Heston one. It's been a while since I've seen him all oiled up in Vaseline mm-hmm. in that chariot scene. With all that lovely, lovely homosexual subtext strewn that about that courtesy, really of, ridiculous. courtesy of one Gore Vidal. Um, there's... I'm not... I've done a lot of research and I'm not going to give it all away. You'll have to tune in to require viewing. Um, follow us on Instagram at Re- required viewing pod mm-hmm. at Instagram.com. And we will be announcing when our first episode is going to be posting. It will be posting before the end of the month of January. Very nice. Yeah. And I will say that I I'm, I love that you do it, that you're going to do this because the Bride of Frankenstein chat, you dove into different angles that I wasn't expecting, and I want to hear that on a weekly basis coming out of you. Well, thank you. So Sam. I'm very excited to be able to listen and to share this with our listeners because there are some films that we haven't tackled yet, like Birth of a Nation, that we'll get to eventually. Because, uh, but I think it's important for people to start getting that education sooner rather than later, because those are films in particular where context is very key to understanding why it was a success and also why we have to view it under a different lens today. 100%. As I told you before we started recording, that film made me feel very icky. Mm -hmm. And I was yelling at the television set quite a bit during it it is so racist we're gonna read chloe and i have a lot of opinions on it we're gonna talk about it on the podcast so tune in for that but yeah if you don't know what birth of a nation is it was the first three hour long movie Mm -hmm. the first 12 hour or 12 real movie um it the reason why we're talking about it is because it really uh brought us a lot of the basic building blocks of technical cinema that we have now close-ups fade outs you literally see them open and close the aperture in that movie yep and you watch the story structure take fold for film um now there are mark cousins's documentary on the story of cinema and odyssey pointed to the fact that there's a film about the kelly gang that's uh also the one of the first feature-length films that actually predates birth of a nation but either way birth of a nation because of what it innovates for the mass populist scale, it, it is there is something to discuss in that while keeping in mind the the outrage that that film uh, received, rightfully so, by... 100%. It really shook up the country. Yeah, the black press in particular was heavily insisting that that movie was a danger to people. And because it helped reform the Klan, yes, it was. Um, but um, we're thankfully not here to talk about Birth of yeah, a Nation. Yeah, we're going to get away we- from Birth of a Nation. We're going to talk about a way better movie. Yes. We- <laughs> I was very angry at the end of that movie. <laughs> yeah, we are here to talk about a Frank Capra movie. And a boy, Clarence. No, not that one. Not that one. Not yet. We're not doing It's a Wonderful Life yet. Settle down, Ballyhoo podcast. Brain. Maybe next Christmas. Maybe next Christmas, yes. Or maybe next Halloween. Let's just change it up a little bit. Oh, yeah, because we are talking about a Halloween movie today, but I'm a Halloween person, so mm-hmm. I can talk about Halloween literally 365 days a year. Yes. we can, Every we, day is Halloween to it, me. It, it is, because it is the best holiday. Spoiler 100%. Over. Christmas is a good time for family, but let's face it, Halloween is good anytime. And you can celebrate it with your family, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're here to talk about Arsenic and Old Lace, a movie that 
has so many legendary luminaries strewn about it, and yet when I was preparing this episode, I realized that to make it a focal point of every single legend involved would be hard to do because the the property kind of takes on a life of its own because this isn't just a film. This is also a stage play mainstay. Now, what what was your first exposure to the material that is Arsenic and Old Blaze? So the movie was my first exposure to the material. I saw the movie fairly young. I don't remember exactly what age. It was definitely like late elementary school, maybe middle school. So between like 10 and 13, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love Cary Grant. He's one of my favorites. So yeah. I think that's why I found it is because TMC is a great place to be. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was on TMC and I watched it. Yeah, we can all live there if we want to. Right? <laughs> TCM is is heaven. Like, yeah, if, yeah, I, yeah. if I die I and I don't get sent to hell, I hope I get sent to TCM. Right. <laughs> um, and then when I was a senior in high school, my theater director asked me what I wanted to do before I graduated high school, like what play I would like to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, Arsenic and Old Lace. She said, I think we could make that happen. And I auditioned for it. And I got cast as the part of Martha, which is one of the two sweet old ladies in this. Aww. Yeah. So uh, when I was going back and rewatching it, there's like a lot of nostalgia going on. I remember a lot of backstage conversations that were happening. I remember we'll get there. I want to save some of these stories till we get to them. But mm-hmm. like we had like, well, I'll just wait. <laughs> this is a fun like Victorian story because we were able to get some really cool co- like actual vintage Victorian costumes for this play. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. And we didn't just like find stuff from the thrift store, but some of the costumes that we got are like actual antique pieces. And it was it really made it even extra up to the special. even up to the collar that you would yeah were to my wear. my morning outfit for the morning scene down <laughs> in the basement. I had a huge veil. I don't know how I have literally no pictures of this, but I had a giant veil, and it was like. 20 pounds of lace it's the heaviest costume i've ever worn in my life i literally had to have help like two other girls help put me in the bodice because it was too heavy for me to put it on by myself and it laced in the back oh my god and the collar did go all the way up to my chin and i mean in victorian fashion no one's showing any skin and uh, (laughs) (laughs) um the the Skin wrists is a <laughs> went all the way down past my fingers. I had really long arms on it. And then there was a separate skirt part. And the skirt was another like 10 pounds. <laughs> it was really heavy. It was all lace and like beads. And it was really incredible. I wish I could have like stolen that away. But I'm it wasn't happy that you didn't historical... die on stage. I'm happy that you didn't die on stage. I'm sweating I'll, a lot. I'll they tell you why. definitely should have Febreze that after I was done with it. Yeah. And it, not only that, if you had died on stage and they went to perform that autopsy, the layering that they'd have to go through alone oh based on what you described, yeah. like the they knives wouldn't get through the it. Jaws of life to get me out of that. But it was the most beautiful costume I've ever been put into. No, it was absolutely phenomenal. No, doctor, we can't we we can't get through with just a scalpel. Get out the chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. just cutting through the layers of lace clothing. That's insane. But it also kind of gave me like a good reference point for 
like an actual period piece. This is what people like wore for months at a time. Do you understand like how long mourning went on back in Victorian age? I've been told it's a long time, but I don't know. Like it, dep- ex- it depends on how closely you're related to the person who's deceased. Mm. The closer you're related, the longer in mourning you should be. Okay, so and I should be wearing... the more elaborate your mourning outfit would end up being. So when I found out that Jack Benny was no longer alive, I should have started wearing my mourning clothing now until I die, right? Because I'm very close to him in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, they probably would have been fine with you wearing a black band around your arm. That was like the... No, no, like, no. We're in the outer circle. <laughs> I got to go for the full Monty there. Um, the, you want to have the top hat and the cane and everything. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Till the day you die. Yeah. Fun fact, that's what I'm wearing right now. I am wearing my Jack Benny morning clothes. But yes, so I'm glad that you discovered the film first because it means it has an attachment to you from with that. But also it clearly compelled you to appreciate all aspects of this material. I first saw this film uh, a while back and it was just so out of its mind wacky. I picked it up again. It's weird. It is so weird and so weird for the time. Mm -hmm. Like it is really bombastic and totally out of character for Frank Capra. (laughs) Yes, it is. And that, and that's one of those things when I picked it back up about two years ago, when I found the DVD, because this is a DVD that for the last couple of years has been hard to find because it's technically out of print. Um, my guess is is that somebody's trying to do a re-release of it, whether through Criterion or Kino or something like that. But uh, when I picked it back up a- about a year and a half ago, I was just astounded by how much Capra was able to shove into one set piece or in one in one setting, because this film app operates like a stage play. It's- That's what I was about to say. This film is very much set up like a stage play the directions in the play i unfortunately couldn't find my copy of the play but i still have it mm-hmm. um, the directions are very specific and what the house looks like yep. it gives you exactly what you need to do and he pretty much went to the letter of what that house is described as yeah in the text and, Ca- and capra was and capra was known as efficient he he was an engineer before he got into film so he knows that detail is important he knows the mechanics of everything that are important down to the last stroke and what's more this film is interesting in the legacy of Cary grant because it's it's a Cary grant film where Cary grant is far from his usual self like I'm talking like very far away and it's one of the reasons yeah. that people either love or hate the movie. <laughs> oh, people I just can't even fathom people that hate this movie. I think it's I think it's more like they don't think this is a great example of Grant's work. I'd argue it is because of his vaudeville acrobatic Yeah, past. he doesn't get to do this much, you know what I mean? Yeah, like he North by Northwest. He's so smooth and suave and he's Cary Grant. You know what I mean? No, granted, he does dive away from a plane. So he is showing that he knows how to move in time. And in To Catch a Thief, he does get to do some stuff. But this is his acrobatic training in full motion. Oh, for sure. This is like this is also stage timing. But like when we were talking about like how he followed everything to the letter Capper did, this film is a is an example of a stage play adapted to film that is cinematic, which I think earns desert, desertion in the discussion because 
I use the producer's remake as an example of this. I love the producer's remake because I'm a Mel Brooks um, devotee. And I think Strowman directed the movie just fine. Yeah. However, the movie operates similar to how some 50s musicals did, where it's trying to recapture elements of the broader stage setting. And so it wants to capitalize on that theatrical blocking as much as it can to recreate the experience for people who couldn't see it on Broadway. Capra was intelligent enough with Arsenic and Old Lace to realize, I'm making a movie. And so, yes, this house is a big set, but I'm going to work this set as if it were a character in the movie. Just as the in the play, it's a character. It definitely is. But that also requires dynamic angles, ways to use the space in a way that allows his camera to flourish. Because Cam- Capra's camera is it can it can move quick it can push in where it needs to um that push in that capper has on people's faces is something we definitely see spielberg do a lot oh yeah and i think that that visual panache finds itself perfectly in here combined with lighting that i'll make an argument to say that it it winds up um helping him with scenes near the end of it's a wonderful life a few years later specifically when george bailey is as at the grave of Harry and also in the abandoned house. And, but we, we, we should, we should halt the Capra discussion for a second to talk about the history of the play. So prior to the play even being written, there is a case, uh, in involving, um, a woman named Amy Archer Gilligan, who was a convicted murderer who ran a boarding house for elderly people. And there are at least 66 people dying in that house between 1908 and 1916. And it is thought that Joseph Kesserling, the writer of Arsenic and Old Lace, really dug into research on this and discovered some stuff to apply to his play. So I hate to break it to you, but I really love true crime. And at this particular uh, time period mm-hmm. um, a lot of people were getting murdered there was all sorts of like wait people died <laughs> I know right H.H. H. Holmes was mm-hmm. very prevalent our at first this serial killer correct this was like the time of Albert Fish and H.H. H. Holmes and like mm-hmm. a lot of people just disappeared and did not come back and because they were drifters and there wasn't like there was a a we're seeing those kind of numbers again in the homeless population, but there was a very huge homeless population, just kind of drifter population. And so if someone just disappeared, then people really wouldn't think anything of it. And this whole, the trope of like a woman owning a boarding house and then men go disappearing. There were a number of women throughout the Victorian period who did that. Yeah. And also if you read a book called devil in the white city, it's a book that captures that, or uh, surrounding H.H. Holmes specifically, um, which is a it's a property that Scorsese was supposed to do at one point, and I hope he does it eventually. Um, but there was also, as I was, actually, it's funny, because I was explaining Arsenic and Old Lace to my girlfriend, who hadn't seen it, and she watched it for the first time on New Year's Eve. 
and it was like congratulations it, yeah it was <laughs> it was i'm not gonna lie it was like the most perfect date ever because oh, we just ate italian food and watched this a is a great comedy. date movie yeah, yeah for sure i agree and and her reactions were wonderful because she had never seen it so when they were revealing their murder their murder scheme she was just like oh my god oh my god i was like yes this is the exact reaction i want but she also when she heard the plot of it she said you know this reminds me of something i saw and she pointed me towards this true crime slash makeup artist podcast uh that uh told the story of one um julia tofana who did something similar where she concocted a poison amid makeup called aqua tofana um, which she sold to women to murder their husbands so which that's is amazing that's a that's a quentin tarantino, tarantino movie i want that's his that's his true like he's done period pieces. This is his grand one that'll get him best picture. It'll be bigger than Gone with the Wind if he does. Yeah, that movie. definitely. <laughs> um, but the all this goes into mind in some form or fashion. This knowledge of poison as mur- murder method goes into Kesserling's play. Um, now the play was proposed initially to be a heavier drama, but the producers Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss convinced him it would be more effective as a comedy. So that's what's formed. Now comes the part where Boris Karloff enters. I was making Son of Frankenstein, and I said to myself, this is back-breaking bullshit. <laughs> and I want, I, I, I wish that there was something else that could come around. Now, Secret History of Hollywood by Adam Roach did a series on Val Luton that had to talk about Boris Karloff at this time to lead him into his work with Val Luton. Mm-hmm. And he describes it really interestingly um, as Karloff didn't even give a thought to doing theater, but his agent brought him into a meeting with Krauss and Lindsay and they convinced him by explaining the scene where he enters and says, like, I had to kill him. Besides, he said, I bo- look like Boris Karloff. And that was what sold Karloff. So he joins the cast as Jonathan Brewster with Alan Joslin. <clears throat> sorry, with Alan Joslin. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, with Alan Joslin, who we will talk about eventually here in The Horn Blows at Midnight, uh, assuming the role of Jonathan Brewster, uh, with Josephine Hall and Gina Dare playing Martha and Abby. Uh, the play opens up on January 10th, 1941 at the Fulton Theater in New York. This play is a huge hit. A huge fucking Massive. hit. Massive. Smash. 1,444 performances before it finally closed in 1944. They had to delay the release of this movie mm-hmm. because in the contract, as soon as the, as you said earlier, they were trying to give everyone an opportunity to see this incredible film that was blowing up Broadway. Um, and in the contract for the film, they were going to release it literally the moment the play closed. Yes. And then it never closed. They kept delaying it another year and another year. I think it got delayed three years, right? Yes, three years. Yeah. And it plays into an interesting part of the production of this film and the set design in particular, which we'll get to in a second. The But you brought up the key thing. This movie was a, or this book, this play, this movie, this play was a smash hit. It was at the time the seventh highest grossing play in American stage history. That is insane. I'm really sad that this play still isn't like running as hot and doesn't have like 
as many people don't really do this play that often. I want Benedict Cumberbatch to play Jonathan Brewster. Shut the front door. Oh my God. I'd never thought about that, but now that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Now I'm casting this on yeah, this, this, is, this is kind of a spoiler for what I would say about connective tissue, but I pitched this to my co-host on Real Nerds, Ryan Frost, because he's a huge Cary Grant, uh, and we were texting back and forth while I was rewatching the movie. And he and I told him, like, you know what? I wish somebody would remake this. Definitely. Uh, as a film. And he's like, I agree. And I Do you was, know why they're not going to do it, though? Why? We're murdering homeless people. And it's like in a funny context. You're like, ha, ha, ha. They're buried in the basement. But I... I mean, we could. I would love to see someone try to spice this movie up and maybe remake it as an actual horror movie. Well, I think that would be fun. I think you could have, if you were to get the two people that I have in mind to do it, I think you can have the best of both worlds because I firmly think that the Coen brothers would be the best choice to direct a remake of this. I would agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, the problem is, is that Ethan has said, I am done with film. And I'm like, no, please don't. But the other one's still rocking and rolling. Ethan, no, we need you. I don't get me wrong. I can't. I'm going to see Tragedy of Macbeth tonight. I'm super yeah. excited. But it's 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 like when the Avengers break up, and you don't want to see Tony and <laughs> Tony and Cap fight, but then they come together at the end. And what I, I do thought like, you said you didn't like Marvel I, movies. I, I've seen them all as well. Don't. I'm just giving. I've you. never seen. <laughs> I've never said I don't like Marvel movies. I've just been upset that they're occupying way too many of our screens. Agreed. Now, that being said, though, uh, all that aside, this is a film that balances and a, a property in general that balances horror and humor quite well. And Karloff was not only a perfect choice to do this, but he made bank off of this thing. In addition to a straightforward salary, he got 10% of the box office and 10% of revenue within the property as it would generate, which included the film rights. Well, I bet being an investor on this project had something to do with that. Mm-hmm. He probably got to like add some little nice little spice to his contract and get some of those in there. Absolutely. Now, now, now comes the part where Hollywood kicks in and um, you'll have to pardon me with some pauses because I'm going to be going through a couple different sources here. First of all, uh, there is a book out there called the Capra touch. Uh, which is written by Matthew C. Gunter, which is an amazing study of um, uh, the films of Capra between 1934 and 1945. Um, And there's also the book Five Came Back by Mark Harris, uh, which is an amazing book discussing the careers of five different directors during wartime. And Arsenic and Old Lace popped up way more than I remembered in Five Came Back. And especially there's a whole section dedicated to it in the Capra touch. But um, we should say that the production of this film, as you said, would have to be halted, but the screen rights were heavily coveted. I mean, heavily coveted. The rights for the play came within an onslaught of Broadway productions being scooped up by Hollywood. Variety reported on January 29, 1941, that acquisition figures for Broadway properties capped at over a million dollars in acquisition money, which... Put that into your currency converter and realize how much money was being spent on properties at the time. Um, And figures for arsenic and old lace were being asked for as high as 250 grand. Now, Paramount and Samuel Goldwyn, Samuel Goldwyn Productions, who would produce movies like The Best Years of Our Lives, 
were seeking the property in addition to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers finally scooped up the rights with $200,000 in the pocket of Krauss and Lindsay, as well as Mr. Karloff. Um, the article, there's an article from Variety on the 5th of February, 1941, that says, in amidst the acquisition, May Robson, Marjorie Rambeau, and Jane Darwell are all under contract to Warners and are considered likely candidates for the roles of the two old ladies of Manhattan who murder their guests to put them out of their misery of bereft old age. And I find that interesting because those are fine actors that they just mentioned. Marjorie Rambeau was an amazing yeah. actress. Oh, yeah. But... We can't see this movie without Gina Dare and Josephine Hull. We can't. We can't conceive of it. And this comes the part where Karloff. You might be wondering why is Karloff not in this movie? Well, being not only an investor in the play but also the main box office attraction to this play, it was considered, according to what I was able to find, um, that the producer, the main producers, Krauss and Lindsay. Uh, saw him as such an asset to the play that they wouldn't want to give him the time off to do it. But they let Hull and Adair go. Hull and right. Adair would say years later that they were ever grateful and that Karloff was gracious about letting them have the time off. There's also conflicting reports that say he was rather begrudged being not being able to I do mean, the role. I would be a little begrudged myself. This is bullshit. I, 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 don't get me wrong, Lindsay Kraus, I love you for giving me this opportunity, but what the flying fuck? <laughs> I should... It Technically, the joke won't make sense if I'm not in it. <laughs> it's not meta anymore. Have you ever seen Scream? You'll never... You won't see it. It's coming out years <laughs> later. But Scream is a very good meta movie, but we are doing it here first. We're doing right? it here first. <laughs> I... I you know, I love Massey in the movie. Let's, let's get that off the bat. I love Massey in the film. And, and I, they make him look... Like, a lot like Boris Karloff. He, like, they do a really good job with his makeup. And he, he does, does look like Boris Karloff. But I mean, everybody who looks like Boris Karloff just looks like Frankenstein. Like, that's what it is. Glenn it's Strange. not really just, <laughs> it's not really Boris Karloff. It's the Frankenstein makeup. The only person who never looked like Frankenstein in the Frankenstein makeup was Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> he did not look like the Frankenstein monster at all. Yeah, it was very off. Glenn like, mm, this one does not look like the other. Bella Lugosi looked more like Frankenstein's monster than Lon Chaney Jr. did. Um, but nevertheless, Karloff does not get involved in this. Um, but Capra does. Capra at this time is coming off of a very interesting scenario in his life. He has left Columbia Pictures, um, his home where he basically made that studio a thing because it was a poverty row studio initially harry khan the notorious harry khan uh basically uh giving capra free reign to experiment as much as he could um a similar movie in this situation to a very quickly shot film uh was it happened one night shot in just under four weeks Ended up winning all five major Academy Awards, including as for well, it should. Yeah, oh yeah, it's an amazing film. Fun, fun. This fact. movie <laughs> proves that you don't need explosions. You don't need all these set pieces. You can literally, if you know how to frame things correctly and use right lighting correctly and use your angles correctly, you can film a play and make it into a movie. Yeah, 
and Capra make it cinematically different from the play. Yeah, and Capra is known for doing this well. Like he prior, he had done other play adaptations before, including you can't uh, you can't take it with you. Um, I was in that too. You you were. <laughs> I was Gay Wellington. <laughs> I have that and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town finally coming into my library on Blu-ray because um, I haven't seen. Uh, you can't take it with you, but I have seen Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, so I'm going to get a first-time watch and a rewatch in me. But You Can't Take It With You is a is a play that by Kaufman and Hart mm-hmm. that had a wonderful reputation and is mentioned all throughout um, your your radio comedies of the time because they would reference it as a joke, as a ta- as a punchline. And Capra at this time had left Columbia to form his own production company. Um, he brought on Robert Redskind to make the film Meet John Doe with Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck, which I had never seen before and rewatched it last night in preparation for this because oh, I, nice. I wanted to see the film that he made before making this. Yeah. Because Meet John Doe is very much in the tradition of what we know Capra to be. There's an idealism. There's an optimism about America. It's in a lot of ways. It's the it's the America that uh, John Cassavetes once said. Maybe there was never an America. Maybe it was just Frank Capra's America. And that idea, combined with his penchant to mix humor and stark drama. Uh, like very stark, very well lit, very expressionist in a lot of places, creating a form of America we wish existed. And that movie was rattled around in the press specifically because the story of Meet John Doe has an impossible ending for the era, both from an audience standpoint and quite frankly, probably from a um, uh, censor standpoint which would essentially have John Doe, played by Gary Cooper, having to go through his word on committing suicide on Christmas Eve. And that's a dark ending, especially for a country that is literally about to be thrust into World War II Mm -hmm. and already feeling the terror and fear of having to enter into another world war. So Capra reshot this ending three fucking times. It became a joke in the press. Uh, there was a there was a variety article that stated like, you know why today is a fun day because this is the day or, or, or a great day because this is the day that Capra is not shooting another ending for me, John Doe. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. The movie, uh, the the movie received ill critical reception. Um, from all accounts, it did pretty well at the box office, but Capra. Capra's stock in that idea. He was basically trying to make a movie to answer all of his critics and at the same time affirm his standpoint on the state of the world at that time. Capra's also a figure that fluctuated from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party after not only after meeting Roosevelt, but also recognizing the threat that was imminent mm-hmm. with World War II and Hitler in particular. Um this is a man who is also, despite a lot of those conservative convictions, was very instrumental in negotiating a lot of the deals that would secure rights um, from minimum wage up into working rights for the Screen Directors Guild, um, which he used via his power as president of the Academy at a certain point to help broker those deals. 
In fact, his Oscar for You Can't Take It With You is highly seen as both a tribute to the film and also as a thank you for basically saving Hollywood. Uh (laughs) I will say uh, You Can't Take It With You is another film that is very close to the play, like a very close adaptation. Yeah, I've heard that one of the key things is that he changes some of the political rhetoric that Hoffman, Kaufman and Hart have in favor of a little bit more of a broader yeah, thing. Yeah, um, but as as far as like set pieces and stuff, mm-hmm. we're not in a bunch of different places. We are pretty, it's another house centralized period comedy of the time yeah and he does the same here in arsic and old lace now and i find that interesting because the tendency is to create it cinematically which is i'll I'll use mel brooks again as an example when he wrote the original producers he first thought it was a novel and they said like no it's not it's a play and then they look and they said there's too many scenes in here it's not a play it's a movie so the, the the idea is usually to split yourself up and like give you locations and whatnot here he's he's adhering to it almost point for point and because capra is such a good director he is able to make it cinematically interesting in a way that most plays when they're adapted to film don't feel the tendency especially with a play i feel today is to make it a character dialogue piece that has some cinematic flourish but the common criticism you will find is is that like it's not as interesting it might we might as well be watching the play i think yeah. it's the most consistent critical analysis of most adaptations this one i will absolutely state on a stack of bibles is one of those movies that proves exception to that rule well he was able to figure out the momentum the thing that you get in a play is that you're sitting you're watching a story from beginning to end and these people have built momentum and the flow of the momentum of the play doesn't always necessarily transfer to the screen right which you've got to rearrange some stuff sometimes and then that kind of creates a plateau i don't know i'm not a huge fan of play adaptations a lot of the time have you ever seen the petrified forest from mm-hmm. 1936 no I, have not. I would love to show you that film yeah. and give you uh an example of another uh, of another film that i think got the adaptation correct um because it literally only takes place in two locations love it um and but it also in a, in a lot of ways i compare it to the hateful eight because it very much acts as that bottle piece and it's a gangster movie with Humphrey Bogart in his big debut, and they transplanted him and Leslie Howard from Broadway to do it. I don't know if it's the most cinematically interesting movie ever made, but it gets a lot of stuff right where it probably shouldn't. Um, and a lot of it has to do with how the actors are engaging us. Yeah. And I feel like this film is able to have its cake and eat it too from the Definitely. visual and the characters. Now, Capra... I'm going to read from the book Five Came Back here for a minute to talk about where Capra was at this point. Um, Capra was very eager to serve his country. He almost did in World War I, but by the time he actually got into active training, the war was over. So <laughs> like missed it by that much, to quote Don Adams. And so he was eager to serve. He was an Italian immigrant who loved his country and wanted to show it. And given his newfound predilection for fighting the tyranny that was Hitler, he set upon wanting to commit to service. 
Mark Harris writes in Five Came Back, Capra was nonetheless ready to serve. Conscious that his entry into the army would mean a greatly reduced salary, he spent the fall of 1941 shooting arsenic and old lace for Warner Brothers as a kind of insurance policy for his family. The $125,000 fee he received would tide his wife and children over for a while, and more money would arrive when the movie was released and his percentage of the profits started to roll in. In an unusual arrangement that would eventually put great financial strain on Capra because there's um uh the the uh, let me stop right there there's something interesting about the percentage here that I wasn't understanding until Mark Harris kind of clarified it for me it would put a great financial strain on Capra Warner had signed a contract pledging not to release the film until the play had closed mm-hmm. and so his percentage came as the war was ending so the percentage that was supposed to come in for the duration of the war didn't come because oh. of the contract so the percentage profit meant nothing to him until after the fact oh my gosh okay. which is it's in now and the he goes on to say he shot the comedy in october and november of 1941, Capra seemed to be planning for two different futures simultaneously, playing Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox against each other in an attempt to secure a new contract that would pay him $250,000 per movie, and at the same time making plans that allow would allow him to walk away from Hollywood at a moment's notice. In the Army, his salary would top out at $4,000 a year. Days after Pearl Harbor, Capra was back on the Warner lot, filming the last few scenes of Arsenic and Old Lace when he was visited by Cy Bartlett and Richard Slosberg, who had come to Hollywood as a good cop, bad cop team in an attempt to induce some of the industry's biggest names to join up in the army. And this is where we start to see the small formations of why we fight. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, why we fight is the series of documentaries that Capra made during the war, which you can learn more about in a documentary form with the five came back series on Netflix. Now Grant and his participation in this film fascinates me because there are stories that I can't confirm. Um, and if I find further confirmation, I will add it as an addendum on the show, <laughs> which I, I learned today is one of your favorite words. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's um, a great word. It's a great word. Addendum. Uh, but, uh, Cary Grant was not the first choice, apparently. Uh, Which I don't know why he wasn't the first choice, because he just seems like the perfect choice. But the other choices were pretty good, too. Yeah. So Paramount it, Paramount had bid for this property. Had they gotten the property, it's more than likely that the persistent Bob Hope would have gotten the role of Mortimer Brewster. Um, but and he and it's said that he even tried to get the role and tried to get released from Paramount to do it, but Paramount wouldn't allow him to do that. The other people that were in consideration for Mortimer Brewster were Ronald Reagan, which no. <laughs> no. Yeah, not, no. Nah, no, 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 no. No, no for him, no for no. this, no for Rick and Casablanca, no. no. And the other one was Can you hear that? It's Love and Bloom playing because Jack Benny was apparently considered for this movie. I cannot confirm that as of now. If I can't confirm it when this episode goes out, then this is just a weird IMDb trivia fact that is spread into other websites. I do not see Jack in this role. However, see, I would I have pay a hard good time. money to see I, it. 
Yeah, no, it'd be really funny. And Bob Hope would be a really interesting choice, too. But I don't know. There's something about Cary Grant's, like, especially at the beginning, like, he just comes on the screen and he's just so... You're watching the end of a Cary Grant movie that would have already existed, like The Awful Truth. Correct. That's what you're watching, and then it dives into the madness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just fits it so well. He's so poised, and mm-hmm. it just works. His evolution into the madness of his situation is exemplified by how, like, I'm going to say, I'm going to put air quotes while cool and collected, because he's really not that cool and collected at the beginning, but his air is, I have to be cool and collected. Yeah, he, he has to keep it cool even though that performance, the as it's presented theatrically, like it is in this film, is somebody trying to keep cool, but clearly a nervous wreck. 100%. I think Cary Grant does anxiety super supreme justice as a concept in this movie. Because when I watch him in this movie, I think that's me on a daily basis. This <laughs> is a constant stream yeah. of anxiety and frustration. His hair gets more and more wild as the, mm-hmm. the movie his progresses. Eyeballs. His eyes keep bulging out. It's just so much fun his, to watch him fall into chaos. His eyeballs could give Peter Lorre and Eddie Cantor a run for their money. You could put them all on stage together and call it uh, three pairs of eyes or something like that. Oh my that. gosh, yeah. Um, and uh, and I'm not even a big Eddie Cantor It's, it's fan, a very but... eye-centric cast. There's a lot of bulging eyes in this movie. Right, which I think- Big old eyes. I think it helps because if you're a di- because you can't see that on stage. Correct. So it's it's that, an extra dimension. Absolutely. You have to be intimidating with your body because you can't be intimidating with your eyes. That is the biggest difference between movies and yeah. plays. And- um, why don't we talk a little bit about Raymond Massey for a second? Because he is replacing he's replacing me. I mean, he's a nice guy, I guess, but what the fuck? <laughs> um he uh I don't know entirely much about him, but he was uh known for the lead role um that got him an Oscar nomination called Abe Lincoln in Illinois, film that takes place during Well, I could see him I've never seen that movie, but I could see that man as Abe Lincoln. That I, makes sense. That adds up. I can see him doing it and I can see Daniel Day Lewis doing it. And that's why those are the two good Lincoln. The yeah. the two Lincolns. We can put them in a uh, ring with each other and make them fight. <laughs> <laughs> well then also there's um I can't remember who I think it's Henry Fonda who plays um Young Mr. Lincoln in uh, John Ford's movie. I can't remember. But um, Young Mr. Lincoln is a movie that I'll have to re-examine to see if we can get a three-way fight between all those actors. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Um, But uh, he was also known as Dr. Gillespie on the Dr. Kildare TV show from 61 to 66. Um, And he is also Abraham Farlan in A Matter of Life and Death, which we talked about a few episodes back in a very, very good performance in that movie. So he's he's a solid actor. Canadian, too. So, you know, like it, there's there's more than one Canadian on this set. Because <laughs> now it's time to talk about our two lovely Brewster sisters, Josephine Hull and Jean Adair. Josephine Hull had a solid, sturdy film career. She won her Oscar for Best Supporting Actress uh, uh, six years after the release of this film for the movie Harvey. 
Um, Another great stage play. Mm -hmm. I feel like the most effective stage plays are the one uh, film adaptations of stage plays are the ones that stick as close to the original play as possible. And that is another one. It also helps when the play is adapted into a movie starring me, Jimmy Stewart. I love Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant are like my top two echelon dudes. I, the only I thing I them. wish is that Cary Grant could have joined me and Harvey and then together the three of us would have solved the mystery of some Oh my kind. gosh, it would have been so great. <laughs> that would have been great. Harvey, Harvey's no longer a figment that represents alcoholism. He's just a private detective. <laughs> 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 Which completely tosses the point of that movie out the door. Um, but uh, no, she had... Um, she she made a debut in stock theater in 1905. Josephine Hull did her first big success on stage came with Craig's wife in 1926. So she was primarily Broadway based uh, until 1932 with the movie After Tomorrow, which is her big debut. But she, along with Gina Dare, didn't do a lot of film. Um, in fact, 1932, she does two movies, After Tomorrow and Careless Lady dips out and then comes back in 1944 for arsenic and old lace goes back to the stage comes back in 1950 for harvey and then does the movie the lady from texas in 1951 um and she and her um but her her stage career has things such as seven keys to bald plate you can't take it with you Mm -hmm. harvey and the solid gold cadillac there's a a good stack of stuff going on here um gina dare uh, similar to Hull, didn't do a lot of movies. Her first film was in 1933, Advice to the Lovelorn, where she's uncredited. Then she comes back for <laughs> Arsenic and Old Lace in 1944. Then she dips out for a couple of years, comes back with Living in a Big Way in 1947, Something in the Wind in the same year. And her last film is an uncredited role as a little old lady in The Naked City from 1948. Um, uh, she was born in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. <laughs> Um, and she um, performed as uh, Jeanette Adair in Vaudeville, performing as a singing comedian. Apparently, uh, she uh, ran into Cary Grant during her time on stage when Cary Grant was a young aspiring stage actor. Really? And helped him through rheumatic fever. So there was a reunion of sorts going wow. on here. Okay. I didn't know that That's either. A story. I okay. have a feeling the secret history of Hollywood might just address that because the next part of Carrie should be covering this movie along with other great successful Cary Grant films. Go to Secret History of Hollywood, blah, plug done. Um, I do not get paid for these plugs. That show is just fucking amazing. And if you're not listening to it, why the fuck aren't you? Um, now, uh, we also have an arsenic and old lace, a returning friend, that lovable, mischievous, irreplaceably evil presence that is Peter Lorre. I love Peter Lorre in this movie. I love Peter Lorre in pretty much like oh, every anything. movie. Peter Lorre... Peter Lorre could play Hannibal Lecter, and I would give him 20 Oscars for each time he played it. <laughs> so my uh, Okay, this is a tie between my two favorite Peter Lorre movies. It's this one and The Raven with Vincent <gasps> Price. Ooh. In 1967. Him near the end, too. That's yeah. interesting. Old, fat, just kind of oh. roll him onto set, Peter Lawyer. But he, and he's like constantly sweating and he's just yelling at Boris Car and Boris Karloff's in that movie, too. Yeah. And Vincent Price. And 
Jack Nicholson. That's one of his very first movies. Here's the, one of the reasons why I have a hard time watching Peter Laurie at that stage in his life, because he was a morphine addict, and a lot of that sweating might have been withdrawals. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, that combined with his overweight, like he was, he had he had gained a hundred pounds over time by the time he was making his those eyes films. still bulged way out of his head. Even yeah, at the end, you can start seeing it in Beat the Devil. Um, uh, Bogart, uh, Bogart and Houston film beat the devil because he's in it and he he he's looking like he's on his last legs there too. Um, but Laurie, uh, a favorite Laurie movie. There's a, he was in a lot of movies. It's I, a really hard thing, but I, I mean, just really love the Raven. We've already talked about it on this show, but I love M. I think he's great in M. Yeah, that's a good one. Man who knew too much. That's uh, a good one. Casablanca, I guess, is technically my favorite because that's in my favorite films of all time. My favorite performance of him as of late has been Three Strangers, which is an amazing film yeah. from '46. I don't know if I should say this on the air. What? I've never seen Casablanca. Are you gonna kick me out of your house? No, now? no, no. That's I, dude. It's just one of those ones. <laughs> You just get it just gets into the zeitgeist, into the ether, and then you know everything about it, and then you don't ever actually sit down and watch it. What you don't real what I, I'll tell you the thing that I tell everybody when I tell them to watch Casablanca. Don't think about the love story. Just think about it as a movie where Humphrey Bogart learns that it's right to kill Nazis. Okay. That's, the, that's, the that's a way better that's a lot more engaging to me than <laughs> their love story, if I'm being honest. Yeah. That being that being said, it's the best romantic film made in the golden age of Hollywood. Not not Gone with the Wind. Just pointing it out. See, there. I have seen Gone with the Wind. I'm not completely oblivious. No, you don't. But, but uh, you, it's just one of those ones. Once you, I'm watch, gonna get around to it. It's gonna happen. Once eventually. you watch Casablanca, you'll throw Gone with the Wind in. The I'll trash. probably end up watching it for my podcast. So maybe you can come on for that one. <laughs> okay. okay, I will gladly. Uh, Casablanca's okay. And I uh, maybe you can come over and watch it with us because we have watch parties. Ooh. Yeah, you can come watch it with us. I'll do that okay, in a cool. heartbeat. But yes, no. Peter Lorian here plays Doctor Einstein, who is kind of like a inversion you of should history. put air quotes around doctor <laughs> he is quote 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 doctor yes doctor quote, he's he's a he is a back alley surgeon is what he is um he probably was some sort of medic during the war and got like basic surgical training but he is by no means an actual doctor no but it's also Given what Peter Lorre is known for, especially in the 40s, as kind of like the the supporting character that's like an evil henchman or an aside villain, this is kind of like an inversion because Dr. Einstein is a person who is fed up with killing. <laughs> he is done with killing. He wants to go home. <laughs> he does. He's very tired. He's very tired. He talks about it a lot in the movie. He's mm -hmm. just like... I'm really tired. I wanna kind of want to go to sleep. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I we'll get to one of my favorite lines in the movie near the end, but um I think at this point we should start talking about the plot of Arsenic and Old Lace. Yeah. We open up with credit sequences adorning with Halloween imagery. I will say the credits to this movie are one of my not only like favorite film credits, but it's a good differentiation between the play. That's some of the stuff that Frank Capra puts in there that's not in the play. Yeah, because all the little slides of like little intro dialogue that they have 
Um, I should have written them all down. I have them all written down. Yes, I do. you do. Um, First of all, let me get this out of the way. Directed by Frank Capra. Screenplay by Julius J. Epstein and Philip G. Epstein, the writers of Casablanca, who we've already talked about, as well as the writers of the adaptation for Young at Heart. Based on the play by Joseph Kesserling, produced by Capra, starring Cary Grant, Raymond Massey, Peter Lorre, Priscilla Lane, Jack Carson, Josephine Hull, and Jean Adair. Cinematography by Sol Polito, one of the cream of the crop cinematographers of the era edited by daniel mandel music by max steiner really mickey mousing the score oh definitely (laughs) um and uh the film uh made for a budget of one million uh one hundred sixty four thousand um uh we open up with the first of all, we get those kitschy Halloween things. Mm-hmm. One thing he does change is that the play takes place in September. The movie takes place at Halloween on Halloween night, which I love. Mm-hmm. This movie should find a way to intersect with the Halloween franchise somehow. I like John Carpenter's Halloween yes. franchise. Is yes. that what you're talking you about? You heard me. I want the Brewster <laughs> sisters to team up with Dr. Loomis to take out Michael. <laughs> you know what? I think the two of them could do it. I think he would be really like off put. Michael, here's some elderberry wine. (laughs) You're like, oh, these sweet old ladies, they're never going to see it coming. And then he just like finds a glass of something and drinks it. That's the end of of Michael Myers. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie Lee Curtis is like, yes, for Halloween ends, we're going to kill him with elderberry wine. (laughs) That's the last in the reboot series. Um, But the first credit, the title card that opens up, I have them all written down here. I transcribed them. This is a Halloween tale of Brooklyn where everything can happen and usually does. At 3 p.m. on this particular day, this was happening, and we get a baseball brawl. (laughs) Yeah, here's just a random baseball montage. Because America. Because baseball is America. I love looking at the uh, the badges on them because it's clearly the Brooklyn Dodgers at this time. Yeah. They have badges on them that say our bums. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, I want that badge now, but to just walk on the street with it and have people think of different contexts for it. And I'll be like, no, guys, it's a baseball thing. Get it out. Get your minds right. out of the gutter. <laughs> <laughs> um and then, uh, and I wrote down that it, we're setting up kind of a screwball comedy of sorts. Essentially, we're we're dealing with a screwball uh, oh, territory. Here. Absolutely. But there's an inversion that happens after this opening credit sequence happens because obviously we're dealing with the macabre, which is not expressly a trait you'll find in a lot of screwball comedies necessarily of the era. Then we have. A further prologue that says, while at the same time across the river in the United States proper, (laughs) there was romance in the air, which I love the little dig at Brooklyn, like Brooklyn as a concept. You'll hear this in radio shows of the era where they're like, Brooklyn is it's basically its own little country (laughs) that just just exists. (laughs) um, But this is where we get the marriage license bureau scene where we have photographers going to take pictures of the fire chief or, or the of the mayor and his new fire engine or something like that like it's it's very strange but they're just there and then they spot who do they spot Aaron they, sp- they spot the bachelor of all bachelors Cary Grant <gasps> but and and Chris- he's essentially the Cary Bradshaw of the 1940s <laughs> I've been watching a lot of the Sex in the City news series and Carrie Bradshaw's on my mind. Yeah, no, he's and written just like a- that. Mortimer Brewster was married. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah, no, they run away. He doesn't want a big po- pomp and circumstance. He just wants to sneak, sneak away into the night and marry yep. his 
aunt's neighbor's daughter. Yeah, who's a minister's daughter. Yeah. And a girl Scandalous. from and a girl from Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah. She's from Brooklyn. Gotta watch those Brooklyn gals. I, I don't. I, I'd marry one. <laughs> no, she's gorgeous. I have no idea what, Priscilla, what the problem is. Priscilla she's Lane. So beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's in she's in the ro- the Roaring Twenties. She's in a Jack Benny movie called Meanest Man in the World. I just love looking at her. She is that first oh. scene where okay, I gotta say, she's gorgeous, she's beautiful, she's amazing, but she's so fucking whiny in this movie. Mortimer, Mortimer. <laughs> she just cries Mortimer through most of this movie. The first scene she's um, going like, Yes, Mortimer. I know, but that's how really beautifully lip. framed. Mm-hmm. There's like that zoom in on her face and <sighs> just the kind of haze and <sighs> it's just gorgeous. It's it's remarkable. And and the the scene in the telephone booth in particular where he's just like, how could you do this to me? Me, a bachelor, Mortimer Brewster. Like that that him going through his credits as essentially like, uh, how do we describe this bachelorhood commitment in a modern context? Um, it feels like a bro manual that he writes um, yeah. on the state of marriage, like a bro manual. It's a, he writes self-help help books on how to maintain a happy bachelorhood yeah and how to avoid marriage in particular he he, and we'll get to the title of the book in a second because there is a book but he he's basically like going through the screwball plot that would have ended already where he's just like i don't understand me a bachelor going to get married what yeah (laughs) and uh but they he goes through the marriage and we uh, uh elaine uh is in line with them and a lady turns around and uh, an Asian lady and gives her a smile. And unfortunately the score chooses to use Oriental oh, music. Yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, we're trying to be woke now and we're still struggling. I feel like we need to give these films of their particular time period, a little bit of a break. No, although- we now look at it and we're like, Oh, that's fucking racist, but it's, you got to look at it through 19, 19- 30s 1940s lens exactly but i do want to point it out for people who might go look at that and go like and like yeah it's there it's there i feel like that should be a disclaimer with any of these movies oh yeah we're talking well, about birth of the nation that movie's super fucking racist it just but you to... also have to look at the lens through history you know what i mean yes absolutely there's there's a balance and yes. i always tell people with comfort zone like with that like because of, of what i believe with that is just like watch these in your own comfort if it's absolutely. not for you it's not for you and um but the one thing that uh, uh, that I love though is there's a reaction shot, um, after her, of this goofy looking motherfucker. Why did she? I just I, ever since I've seen this, the very first time I saw this movie, every single time I see this scene, why did she agree? Was the green card that important? This dude looks goofy <laughs> AF. The 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 look on his face is the look of somebody who just had an orgasm with their clothes on. <laughs> And is extremely proud of it. Yeah. That's, that is. That's exactly what that look is. And, and, and Cary Grant's reaction would probably be my reaction if I'm being honest. Oh, it's it's the world's reaction. Like, why the fuck are you looking at me, bro? <laughs> wipe, the, wipe that smile off your face. Yeah. Like, get, get you, get, just don't, don't look. Oh my gosh. It's so weird. Young, young man, so don't look at me like that. I'm just, I'm, I'm not in the mood. Do you understand that I, Mortimer Brewster, I'm about to get married? Because <laughs> he has no problem proclaiming how big of a deal it is for him to throw all of his values under the bus to find love and happiness. <laughs> right. It's it's like uh 
it's it's like the unreasonable version of James Stewart throwing his beliefs under the bus in rope. Yeah. <laughs> like his is reasonable. Brewster's like transformation is strange. Yeah. I love it though. It's it's great. Like it works for the era especially. Like I feel like the weird part of translating this to today would be how do you like rework some of the dialogue with the book that he writes, but it's not a huge deal. I don't think it. I of all the things in this movie that they would probably have to rework to keep networks and studios happy. I think that's probably towards the bottom of the list. If right. I'm being honest, it's there's some... a lot of things in this movie that I ju- I just don't know with cancel culture and how sensitive everyone is these days. I just don't know if killing a bunch of transients is going to play well for general audience. I have a, f- it's, it is, it's through the context. It's always through the lens. Um, it could be, I just, the audiences that this played for slapstick comedies don't really do as well as they used to. That's you know very I mean? true. That's very true. Like, and this is slapstick and screwball combined. 100%. Which we is... still like a screwball comedy, but this is a lot of slapstick. And I just like like the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges and that stuff just does not play for a younger audience anymore. Unfortunately, I still think it's funny. I think it works for um, teenage to adult audiences because you can still show a Marx Brothers movie to a teenager and I would bet dollars to donuts they'd laugh their butts off. I would hope so. But yeah. Three no, man. Like I was saying earlier, I've met some real questionable teenagers. Well, I mean, you do remember the part where in Transformers 2 where Optimus Prime said, Prime said, Dude, I, hope- I did not sit through all of Transformers 2. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll replay it for you. Optimus <laughs> Prime went up to Sam, uh, Sam Witwicky and said, like, I hope you don't mind if I slip out of these wet clothes and into a dry martini. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, that's funny. Someone got a good line in there. Yeah, I know. I, I had to, um, I had to, I had to give Michael Bay props for that. I won't give him props for the racist robots in that movie. That's that's that shit you just didn't need. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, though, we get another title card, though, because um, we go. And now to one of Brooklyn's most charming residential districts. And then we see a big tombstone. <laughs> Boom. And I lo- this is my favorite title card in this movie. From here, you're on your own. I know that's what I was gonna remember. I love this one. It's so funny. It made my heart beat. <laughs> and then the like little pan through the cemetery. That's stuff you don't get in the play. No. That really makes this movie a more charming a- adaptation. Like, yeah. There are there are good scenes you can inject into a cinema adaptation. Yeah. To- help the plot along along and this is a good example of that you know it's funny too we were talking about people who could adapt it because i and i do think that like i think the ideas of this film could be easily re like uh, easily done in the same way because it would be seen as that dark comedy and in a lot of ways you could like push it even further that's why i said the coens could do it very well yeah but you'd probably need Tim Burton to come on as an on-set consultant for the exteriors in here because this feels straight up Tim Burton's alley Definitely. Right here. There's a kitschy Halloween factor to it that's just enough scary. Just enough. Yeah. Just enough scary. Um, I will say that one my one criticism for these exteriors is that that tree looks like the fakest tree ever to grow in Brooklyn. Oh, they're definitely on a soundstage. Yeah. You can tell. You can see the splotches of paint yeah. that is supposed to be layering in it. Well, that's because we also have HD TVs that we're watching this on and mm-hmm. we can see that detail that was not like... It wouldn't have we been... We couldn't a- see that. We You couldn't really see that like 
20, 30 years ago. Yeah, and it wouldn't have been a big deal to anybody because they'd be focused on Cary Grant and Priscilla Lane because who, would, who wouldn't want to watch those two do anything? I would watch them row a boat. I know. They're <laughs> just really beautiful together. Um, then we get the two cops rocking around and um, the sergeant goes, O'Hara, I'm giving you the easiest beat in Brooklyn. <laughs> and he explains the... Stereotypical racist Irish cop. Here you are. Saints preserve us. I know. All right, move along. Nothing to see here. Show's over, folks. <laughs> um, or, or as it's done in Looney Tunes cartoons, you might, rabbit, you might. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, But the, he starts going through the, the what the Brewster sisters are. And the Brewster sisters are just very nice, charitable... Do- doting old ladies. They're the sweet old ladies at the end of the block. Yeah, now very they, unassuming. Yeah, they've they've got a they've got a cuckoo living in the house, but other than that, they're very normal. But a is he a cuckoo, cuckoo, or is he the hero Brooklyn d- uh, needs but doesn't deserve? <laughs> I mean, I guess. <laughs> you no, know, I don't think Aaron. No, Aaron. Aaron. <laughs> he's the Batman that we need in oh 1940s. <laughs> In um that the they go up to the house. I, by the way, O'Hara is commenting on like, do the people who live at do the original owners still live in that house? Yuck, 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 because it's old. And um, we get inside the house though, and we're entered into this house with cousin Teddy playing the piano and playing. I think like a Mozart piece, of some kind. I think so. Yeah, that's something like that. It sounds very. It's much... a very traditional. Like if you heard it, you'd recognize it. Exactly, and that's when we get Abby talking to Elaine's father, the minister, uh, and he he is very concerned about Elaine hanging out with Mortimer because of the kind of books he writes, which because he's a dramatic critic, but he's also a book, uh, an author of such books as Marriage, a Fraud and a Failure. <laughs> Probably not a good way to smooth over your in-laws. Uh, well, you see, that, that was in a before time of me. And I, 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 I. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. Um, and uh, Abby is trying to be like, no, now, now, Mortimer is a nice man. And in he, he, he will, he will be love. We love having Elaine around because it means Mortimer comes around more often. So he, he's there six nights a week now. Yeah, he is. That's what she says. I'm it's, like, dang. She, I hope, I love how her first reaction is. I hope you don't disapprove of Mortimer because he's a dramatic critic and takes your daughter to the theater every night. This is, this is that weird, like, stereotype of actors being a bad influence that existed in vaudeville times. Actors <laughs> have always been a bad influence. Oh, oh my God. Aaron, are Everyone, you a bad influence? The, I know. Well, <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> no, you didn't. You're fine. <laughs> um, th- this is like the the the. I just love that they are that pure. There is just an unadulterated innocence about the two of them. They're like questionably innocent for two old ladies. You yes, know what I mean? exactly. Like you have a feeling that like one one thing could snap them into being like, all right, fuck it. Yeah, we kill right, old men. <laughs> right. There's this like everything in this film hinges on one moment breaking somebody's everything is very on the surface. Mm-hmm. There is, it is just about to break mm-hmm. and they are very, they, they think everything's fine. Yeah. But I think it's a delusion. Like if we like deep dive into the psychology of these two old ladies, which is difficult I, because it's, this is supposed to be 
silly and absurd. <laughs> I know, right? That's yeah, but that's why I don't think this would play for audiences as well anymore because we want that realism. Mm-hmm. It's hard for us to get to that absurd point. Yeah, and well, and I, and I, you, you bring up the when, when it comes to the psychology of this. I had this theory where because of what Jonathan represents to the family, it's almost like that they they brush off what they do as uh as as a charity to escape them realizing they're just as messed up as Jonathan. I'd agree. That's like it's almost like it's it's like um a repression of sorts. 100%. Um like an active repression. They disassociate themselves from the act that they're committing. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. They look at everything they do through a third party lens and, and not a first party lens. And the but the way they do it is just so like rich with because they're so pure on the surface it's rich for the comedy like it's it's exactly it's just magnificent that's what that's what makes it funny is that they're so oblivious mm-hmm. but they're just like it's um I, I use the term aloof like they're very aloof yeah. and it's just it's glorious to watch like the aloofness of an old lady is a kind of a i don't think it's a stereotype so much as just like it was a trope in a lot of movies in this time period, especially, and in radio, like Mrs. Davis from Our Miss Brooks is the queen of this uh, when it comes to radio for my money. Um, and the cops come in and they're there to collect toys that they can repair to give to the children at camp. Um, and Martha and Abby tell, because Martha enters the scene too, and they tell Teddy to go upstairs and collect all of his toys and um, at the 8 minute, 31 second mark, we get the first instance of Teddy going. Charge! And he just runs up the stairs. And that's when. I feel like this, the very first charge is probably one of the most famous scenes that if you've just, if you've never seen this movie, you've probably seen this scene. It's either that or you've seen the gif of Cary Grant gagged. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's these two moments. And this for the audience, Cousin Teddy thinks he is Theodore Roosevelt. But who's to say he isn't? And the stairs are <laughs> San Juan Hill. And every single time he goes up the <laughs> stairs, he's charging the hill. Yep. It's. <laughs> so I love I, Teddy. <laughs> so the production that I was in, um, we had our <laughs> we had the one foreign exchange student played Teddy. He was from Germany, so he had a German accent. That is awesome. That is so. He was a really good Teddy. That's fucking cool. He was really great. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he brings down his toys, which are just a bunch of boats and whatnot. And he grabs one of the boats and he goes like, no, 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 no. The Oregon goes to Australia. (laughs) He's he's very specific to Roosevelt's history. Yeah, he knows a lot. I would probably say Teddy, if again, looking at today's psychology, Teddy is probably on the autistic spectrum. Yeah. And and let's talk about that for a brief second, because this is a weird trope in Hollywood films that we now have a better diagnostic for um, from a mental health perspective. Yeah. But there is this trope and you even see it as far into 1994's The Shadow regarding the ending of that movie in particular, where people think that they're historical figures. And the biggest example is Napoleon. Like like everybody thinks they're Napoleon. Yeah. Um, in the case of the shadow, it's um he thinks he's uh the the he gets imprisoned because he says that he's a last descendant of Genghis Khan and everybody, you know, resorts him to the loony bin. And I think that 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 trope, I don't look at this 
element of the story as a problem because it's so broad that you just you would laugh at it anyway. Like it's just it's that ridiculous that it oh, yeah. it, it could bear. You should not. There's look no at this realism movie in any sort of serious manner. I don't think you can whatsoever. I think we could chuck that notion out the door. Yeah. This movie is pure silly, and it's there is absolutely no intention of hurting anybody's feelings in this movie. This movie is here to exist as batshit crazy on a stick, and right. that's why it's brilliant for it. Um, and <laughs> he. Uh, well, actually, I love when he goes up to the toys. He says, I have to call a cabinet meeting to get the re- the release of these supplies. <laughs> and they say, you've already called your cabinet meeting. <laughs> They're constantly like they know they can just like outsmart him by saying, well, you already did that. Yeah. They do it a number of times throughout the movie. They're yep. like, Teddy, you did that already. Yep. And uh, the cops are given the explanation of it. And they actually ask, like, can you think of anybody else to be uh, uh, other than Theodore Roosevelt? And they Abby and Martha go like, well, we tried getting him to be George Washington for a day to see if it would change things up, but he just stayed under his bed for three days refusing to be anybody. I know. <laughs> like, can you imagine the crisis for three days? Oh my Not being able to be Teddy Roosevelt? Oh my gosh. That's got to like, it's, it's, he doesn't say anything. You know what he does. He stays under the bed and just like stares off into the abyss yeah. until Teddy comes back. Yeah. Um. But yeah, then the cops leave and O'Hara gives him a weird look and um, he says, young man, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Just- and they salute. I love the little salute and he gets his sergeant to salute. Oh, y'all. Yep. And yeah, then we got a salute. And then he goes back so up the stairs at the 11 minute, 27 second mark. We hear. Shut um, and this is where we get Mortimer arriving in a cab with Elaine. Um, and we get, uh, first of all, this cab driver, very patient. I literally, I was just telling my partner this the other day. I feel so bad for this cab driver. I don't really feel bad for anybody in this movie and whatever happens to them. I think it's all just kind of karma. But that cab driver, he was just so patient and so eager. And he just wanted to make these two lovebirds have the best honeymoon ever. And he waits this entire fucking movie. This is a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. He waits the whole fucking movie. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a testament to the patience of a cab driver up that A time. Lyft driver would not do that. No, 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 no. You got five minutes. The app doesn't allow it. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> That's my problem. I didn't have an app that I could guide him by. Be like, hey, you got five minutes, Mr. Brewster. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I j- That's the other thing. I feel like the re- with the realities of like technology and stuff, I, I just don't. Unless you were making like a direct another direct adaptation mm-hmm. of this and not trying to change it contextually whatsoever, making it a 40s period piece. I just don't think you could do this today. There's too many, too many cell phones, man. There's too many. The too old. Late, you would notice people going missing. I think you'd have to make it a period piece to remake it. And I would approve of it because you could still, you could still find a way to layer in uh, today tones into it in a way that translates to the audience. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that even the screwball banter with uh, Lane and Grant, I think, could still work today. Like, I think it's it's romantic comedy dialogue that I think still holds up pretty oh, well. Oh, yeah. It's really funny. I lo- One of the things that I love about Golden Age of Hollywood is the timing, not just in comedies, but in dramas, too. There's just a certain amount of quick paced timing that people had that 
we just don't have anymore. That's vaudeville. That's that's vaudeville. Straight yeah, up. No, yeah, no, yeah. I know exactly where it comes that, from. That's vaudeville. And I love the vaudeville timing. Yeah, and it's. I think it's. You know, within radio, you can hear it done to even more glorious effect with only having your 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 sound as your guiding point, and you picture it in your head a little bit. But in film in particular, like this banter, like right here, right now. Yes, yeah, right here, right now. <laughs> that that kind of interaction or and like when he because he goes back into the house and she's going to go into her house to wait. And he goes like, um, when I uh, whistle for me and be ready with the door open, if you see a black streak, uh, oh, tall sh- black streak of lightning, it's me. Yeah. And then he goes in like it's. <laughs> Cary Grant. That's so funny. How many that cups? Of, so funny. How many cups of coffee and or cocaine could Cary Grant need to have had to have that kind of energy? My He's probably is, just drinking Coke. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I don't remember when they started taking cocaine out of Coca Cola, but it was in there for a long time. I think people are just doing a lot of the Coca-Cola. O- the other way to look at it is that Cary Grant always has this kind of energy because he's a badass ready to work. That too. Mm-hmm. He is a badass. He is a badass. He was always willing to, to up his game and do what he needed to do for the movie, even if he didn't like the results years later. We'll get to that. But he goes in and he he's very, very, very jovial with Martha and Abby. Like he loves them. And, you know, there is like this sense of like he, he he's grown up with this, so he knows nothing else. He he treats Teddy just like a normal he treats him exactly as teddy wants to be treated like the mm-hmm. president of the united states which i love i love that it's like it endears you to mortimer right away yeah it it, it like it, it there's no reason to really hate mortimer even his bachelorhood bullshit is still like it's it's undercut. He found a niche. He found what people would buy. They would buy those books with that topic. Yeah. Whether or not he personally believed that people would write that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. He has this interaction with Teddy that um, I I think as it works in the film, you you just see brotherly love essentially or cousinly love. I guess. Yeah. I don't know if I would say brotherly love. He's more like I feel like he looks at Teddy as like a cousin or an uncle mm-hmm. or just that crazy relative. Yeah. That everyone loves and is endeared to. And his banter with him sounds just like an isolated vaudeville, vaudeville routine yeah. on its own. It's oh, yeah. it's remarkable. And um, Jonathan uh, Mortimer is getting ready to. Um, go back to Elaine's and he's just catching up with Abby and Martha to let them know about the, like to, to confirm the marriage and he's looking around and he stumbles upon the window seat and he has this line about, because he's talking about the plays that he sees and he goes, when the curtain comes up, the first thing you see is a dead body and he opens up the window seat next to the large window and he freaks out. In a his, silent film format, too. Yeah, no, his whole, you see a literal progression of what's going on in his mind on his face. Yeah. That is a actor moment. If you are an actor or want to be an actor and you want to see some spent spectacular film acting, that it's about 15 seconds, but he goes through a whole internal dialogue in about 15 seconds. He, he does the range you need for your headshots. In the span of 15 seconds. Yeah. Every single shot. Yeah. Every single emotion you need to show in those headshots. I, I always think about Tobias Funke uh, showing it in Arrested Development where he's yeah. got like every single different costume. Yeah. And he's like, this is me as a tennis player and this is me as an S&M. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and um, 
and also but prior to this also he is uh, uh, abby finds a picture of jonathan who just looks like a kid who was set up to fail um and uh the, he looks a little like uh the youngest monster yes eddie monster yeah. yes he looks like eddie monster and abby says like just the thought of jonathan frightens me do you remember how he used to cut worms in two with his teeth <laughs> Rob Zombie's Halloween gets a lot of shit, but it did teach us as a modern audience one thing. If a young boy is killing animals, he's a serial killer. (laughs) Yeah, you should definitely. That's when you hear Rob Zombie somewhere going. Well, mm, time out. I feel like every little boy goes through a phase where they don't understand. And every little girl, too. Boys are especially brutal at a young age. I just think that kids don't understand death. It's the ones who know yeah. the consequences of their actions and continue to do it. That's yeah. where the problem Yeah, is. so Jonathan just kept doing it. Yeah. There's the talk talk about him tying Mortimer to the bed and putting needles under his fingernails. Yeah, that's some like serious Albert Fish shit. Yeah. That is fucked up. That is absolutely nuts and out of its mind but yes the double take happens in the window seat and the sisters abby and martha come in and start throwing rice on him going like happy wedding day i know and he's still freaking out as he should be he just saw a dead body in the window seat (laughs) and that's you know that's when he kind of realizes like all right Teddy must have done this. Yeah, it's got to be the crazy one. It's got to be the crazy one because he starts realizing, oh, my God, I'm the only normal one in the house. <laughs> like, <laughs> And Abby and Mar- Martha calmly explained that they did it. Yeah. This calm, matter of yeah. fact. It's matter of fact. Yeah. We didn't We didn't want to bother you. They, with... There is no question. We, we, They've been doing it for... for conceivably years i was like i think it's gone on for years at this point they don't exactly give a specific date in the play they just say that there are 12 bodies buried in the basement but if they do one body every two months three months that's a couple years and the matter of factness comes in the form of like one simple line like because mortimer's like what happened to him and he goes he died he died (laughs) he died smiling smiling it's our body it's insane they claim the body they're like no teddy didn't do it we, we did, did it. it yep no they because they want to take work for, they want to take credit for their charity work yeah <laughs> they could write this off on their taxes and get some kickback for it they totally would yeah and they then he was like well how did it happen and they go like the wine and goes like why did you put it in wine he's like well we put it in wine because it's less noticeable and when it's uh in tea you have a distinct odor and odor yeah so martha my character that i played she is the chemist she is so their father was a chemist mm. and that's where Jonathan Jonathan kind of used to go through the lab and stuff and get into things he wasn't supposed to yeah but Martha would get in there too and she's the one that concocted this perfect arsenic to elderberry wine ratio yeah the elderberry covers the flavor just enough and there was a note in uh production history that said that there's a lot of other scenes from this film that are cut out that kind of go further into the grandfather I don't know what it really would have done. Like, I think it's uh, fine here. Because yeah. there's really not a ton of references to the grandfather in the play either. Yeah. They don't really deep dive into that. He's just like some I, ambiguous figure that kind of like it's his house. It's his money. Like they make that at the very, the very beginning. The cops are talking about, well, these 
two old ladies got this money because their dad They're set, up for set life. them up for life. Yeah. yeah. And um, they have this nonchalant attitude. It's a, it's, it's a testament to all three of them because you have a comedy routine going on with Hull and Adair as, as your, like, your, your, your punchline deliverers and Cary Grant is the straight man, but the attitudes are reversed. So the calm nature of the straight man is going into the calm response of a dare and hull mm-hmm. and the wacky out there reaction of the comic uh, of the person who delivers the comedy lines is going into Cary Grant trying to process what's going on. So they go back to their like business. They're like cooking in the kitchen. They're getting ready. Actually, they're getting ready. They're like getting apples and stuff ready to give to kids because it's Halloween night. Kids are going to come by. With the creepiest Halloween masks from the Mm -hmm. 40s you can possibly imagine. Oh my gosh. Terrifying. Terrifying. These are the the ones you see in those photographs on Pinterest and go like, Yeah, yeah. Nightmare fuel. And then he's trying to suss out like how long has this been happening? What? How many have you done? And they go like, well, we've got uh, 11 and uh, I think it's Martha goes like, no, we have 12. And Abby, oh no, no, Abby says we have 12 Mm -hmm. because- and Martha even says, like, well, you can't count the first one. And she's like, no, I was counting the first one. That makes 12. And she goes like, oh, well, Abby's the one who's smarter at these things. <laughs> Just, so Basically. she's the math expert. Yeah. <laughs> we got math and science covered. Yeah. Oh, and and we get more meta there, too, because they talk after they reveal everything to Mortimer. They talk about taking the Schultz boy to another movie. And yeah, they immediately say we're going to go to a movie tomorrow night with the neighbor boy. Yeah. And they go like, well, the, they, um, uh, you know, we're not going to let Junior take us to another one of those scary pictures. Yes. <laughs> this movie is scream before scream in a lot of ways. Oh, my God. It's phenomenal and we have this breakdown of how everything goes and i wrote down the lines verbatim um they were talking about the first victim who was mr midgley who was a baptist they're very clear to point out their religious denomination and i i the capra touch um book points to this as this interesting commentary on america and its buried uh, the the skeletons in its closet essentially and the desire to have this sense of peace and isolationism where there's the bones of war beneath the basement and uh the the way abby and martha talk about religious denomination in this film is very much of its time to point out the key differences Mm -hmm. because they would be points of humor in a lot of respects whether through ethnic or just religious denomination in general more often than not, you wouldn't reference these directly per se. Like you wouldn't like berate somebody for being a Catholic. But the comedy of them like just pointing out what it is is like they took time to know every single detail that they could about these men before they got before they killed them. I personally, okay, this is just like me as an actor who have done this play. I personally always felt like they had an evaluation process. They mm. had specific questions that they would ask to screen people because you see when. Um, um, the there is an there is a an old gentleman that shows up in just a moment in the movie and he does sit down and he does start to have a conversation with them and they ask him they're like well do you have any family mm-hmm. do you have anywhere else to go well you could stay here I do think they personally have their own like murder questionnaire yeah and he they talk about the um 
Once, but the first one was an accident. He had a heart attack in the chair. Yeah, and they thought, oh, this is this is brilliant. This is a great idea. Yep, and they just they just like if we can give peace to those men with that who are living alone, then we've done our our Christian duty. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they would get along with Jack Kevorkian a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, there's a lot of <laughs> sympathies between the two. Yeah, and they talk about um, the the ingredients for how they kill is they for every gallon of elderberry wine, you have a teaspoon of arsenic, half a teaspoon of strychnine. They, they pronounce it strychnine. And then a pinch, pinch of cyanide. cyanide. Hmm. Sounds like it got a kick. <laughs> when do you just not get out of the house? <laughs> the, the theme of this movie is Mortimer needs to leave this house. <laughs> yeah, he should have just GTFO'd within about the first 20 minutes of this movie you and just the, gone on his honeymoon. You know what the problem is? Lakeith Stanfield wasn't there to tell him, get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lakeith Stanfield should be in most horror movies, but specifically this one. He needs to be there like, hi, I'm Lakeith Stanfield. Get out! Get out! <laughs> um, and then we get a... Um, a, 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 a There's a silhouette in sight of Mort seeing Teddy... Um, uh, as he's coming down those stairs and Teddy is important to their whole murder plot because Teddy, because he thinks he's Theodore Roosevelt has been digging in the basement thinking it's Panama. He's been digging locks for the Panama Canal specifically. Exactly. So that's where they bury the bodies and give them a decent Christian burial uh, in the words of Martha. So... Mortimer resides himself to like, okay, I've got to get Teddy put away and tie up all the loose ends of this house before I go on to my happy married life. He is desperately trying to preserve normalcy or by containing insanity, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is something extremely relatable to any family. Yeah. That's like one of those weird things about the movie that works as a, it works as a family movie in a lot of ways, which I wouldn't like necessarily say like, Hey, for the family movie this evening, we're going to pop some popcorn, eat some ice cream and watch a movie about two old ladies murdering people with wine. And Mortimer calls judge Cole, calling judge Coleman to get everything arranged within all of this and Elaine comes in and he starts freaking out trying to contain Elaine while trying to get that situation handled. You can't talk about this in specifics because there's 500 things happening at once. At one time. Exactly. That's why I keep bringing up the timing because the timing of this movie and the pacing of this movie goes so much faster than we pace movies. Yeah. The last time I was on, we talked about how I didn't like the like cinematography and the fast cuts. Mm-hmm. If we did more fast dialogue instead of fast cuts... Our movies, I think, would be exceptionally better. Well, that's my personal opinion. Which is interesting in this film in particular because um, I would urge you to to watch this movie alongside a Capra movie not not too dissimilar from Meet John Doe or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington mm-hmm. because Capra was known for his quicker editing of this time. A lot of his editing methods are what we consider the norm, but it's not at the same frequency. So, like, he will do fast cuts and hard cuts rather than, like, fade out, fade in. And he will do that on an active basis, specifically in montage. But here, 
his fast editing is accompanying fast dialogue. Even when he cuts in a super fast way, he still allows every moment to breathe. Uh, correct. Yeah. You it's have... not so fast that you're losing things. Exactly. You get every single detail of the theatrical blocking combined with the cinematic blocking in the respect of cut if cinematic blocking were based on cutting and whatnot yeah and like where the camera is supposed to be Mm. blocked quote unquote or positioned as it's probably more well known i'm not talking like a filmmaker right now i'm talking like an idiot but (laughs) that 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 whole mentality of the camera is moving itself along with those characters to match the energy that might be on stage because that that you in the stage you have this whole space to work with and you can watch the energy unfold in one frame in one shot this film is accompanying that the correct way mm-hmm. it's it's something that i think goes unnoticed um and as elaine is tossed out of the house with like i think i'm not kicking you out of the house i'm not kicking you out of the house get out of here and he literally throws her out of the house and there's an old man at the door he comes in. Mortimer is tied up with the phone calls to get Teddy put away. Yeah, he's calling the sanitarium in which they already have prearranged agreements for Teddy to go live. In, when when they die. Yeah, in, in the eventual case of their death. Yeah, but now he has to expedite it, so now he has to get and a voluntary commitment. They don't particularly want him there quite yet because there are too many teddy roosevelt's but we are short we are short of napoleon's uh a bone apart <laughs> i i and i love how witherspoon the doctor goes like oh dear another roosevelt my my there's, my, a, there's a lot of weird roosevelt conflict. there's a lot of roosevelt gags in this era that tie into the fact that franklin roosevelt is in the white house yeah. too mm-hmm. um and we get the old man coming in there they he tells them that he's he's alone and Martha and Abby get that look in their eyes. <laughs> they get a big old grin on their face. It's almost a nudge nudge wink wink in between them. They know mm-hmm. we got we got another one. Yep. And they give him the wine to drink, but he doesn't drink wine, but he hasn't had elderberry wine since he was a kid. So skull. Yeah. And he's about to drink. And I love this shot where he's getting distracted by Mortimer. And you look at the reactions on their faces and the I have I have to imagine the play plays it out as such where they're a little bit like they're blocking is that they're like leaning in. Yes, 100 percent. That's exactly what we did. We slowly like instead of like a zoom in, we like physically leaned in on this dude to create a sense of like doom and gloom. We're going to get you. Would you back up when he didn't drink it and like try to um, portray despair in a broad sense? Oh, well, at that moment, Mortimer realizes he's got the glass in his hand and he screams he's like don't drink it <laughs> don't drink so it we, do you want to get shot, murdered do you want to get killed yeah. he's like, oh my god this actually it's being very aggressive at me he takes lakeith stanfield's place and says get out of the house <laughs> and this is where we get him going like all right i'm going out to the doctor to get the papers signed while I'm here, don't let anybody in the house. And at that scene where he's admonishing his aunts because he's like, they you they don't they they wouldn't understand. He wouldn't understand. He's trying very hard to communicate to his aunts, like, I love you, but you're fucking murderers. Yeah. Like- <laughs> he is trying to be as empathetic as he can mm-hmm. while try 
from while trying to process this very horrific information. Yeah, so they he he books it out the door, and they they go about their day, and they, I love how they're just like, oh, you know why he's probably a nervous wreck? He's just been married. I know. I love that line. <laughs> that line is so funny. Oh, you're just <sighs> upset. You were just married. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. This, All right. I guess it's, people had a bit of a different reaction back then after getting married. I guess. Uh, well, little... their their obliviousness makes that line sing. So funny. It's just it's just their aloofness is perfect, and they start turning out all the lights, and then they start they they hear a knock at the door. You say oblivious. They are oblivious, but I like and I we talked about this when we worked together on the film that we worked together. But I like to pick a a word that describes my character, like that ultimate trait, essentially. Yeah. And earnest. Yeah. These two women are earnest beyond belief. Which is... And that's how I played Martha, was just earnest and just honest and just the sweetest little golden girl that she could be, you know? I would love these two to have made a guest appearance on the Golden Girls. Now that you say that out loud. I've been watching a lot of Golden Girls this weekend. Uh, Queen Betty. peace, Betty White. We gotta say something. We lost two Golden Age luminaries, both of television and film, because we lost Betty White yesterday, or the day before yesterday. Yeah. And we lost Janine Roos, who was young Violet Bickman in It's a Wonderful Life, a big radio star of the era, too. I missed that one. Yeah. We lost some big people this year. Yeah. Betty, uh, I think Betty just, uh, my, I think it was uh, my one of my coworkers said like I think Betty just saw 2022 coming on the rise. Look back at 2021. And said fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> right? She definitely mic dropped. Yeah, she just was just like I'm out. I'm not even hitting 100. I think we should honorarily give her 100. Oh yeah, I'm saying she lived to 100. Yeah. Because I think if you make it within two weeks of your 100th birthday, you should. You're be already able there. To claim that century. You, you were already conceived nine months prior anyway. Yeah, so. fact. <laughs> if we want to get into the weird political building blocks right, of that, right. like, let's just go ahead and just say 109 months. Right. <laughs> like, and then we're done. Um, um, but yeah, these two women are so painfully earnest. earnest. Yes, I agree. And they're, and they're also... Aware of the things that terrify them, and one of them is coming to the door, but they don't know it just yet. What they do know is that a mysterious two men are knocking at the door. They don't recognize them. Very aggressively. It's not a happy knock. No. (laughs) We're going to bust this door in kind of knock. Right, which they end up opening the door lightly and enter in. Some of my favorite, like, actual angles in this whole movie, the cinematography in the next, like, 15 minutes of this movie is insane. I would the argue- lighting, the angles, the whole because they're trying to give you a sense of danger inside the house now. And I think Frank Crap Crap Rosar. Crap- sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Frank Capra. Wow. Way to way to shit up, way to literally shit on my legacy, Aaron. This is Frank Capra. Go fuck yourself. Um, but he achieves a sense of danger with the, the camera touch. I, know. The, <laughs> I love that. The Crapra touch. Oh, it's Freudian a, slip. It's a it's a picture of Frank Capra on a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. And I would argue also it's it's not even that. I would argue even the the middle thirty minute that that thirty minute range because we also get that big stage bound effect with the lights out. 
that's, yeah. that's panning around the room. You're right. It's it's the atmosphere that Capra can bring to a film. And this is his first fucking horror movie. This is I a know, horror movie. This is a horror movie that has a bunch of comedy in it. But yeah. this movie is definitely a horror movie. Yeah. And this is where we get the entrance of Dr. Einstein and Jonathan Brewster. And he... he <laughs> He goes like, I, I waited so long to leave this house as a boy, and now I eagerly return to it as a man. <laughs> and I hope there's a fatted calf awaiting the return of the prodigal. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, he left home and he, he, he went on a journey, that's for sure. He went on. <laughs> this is just Boris Karloff sitting in a, a theater going like, this could have been me. I know. This could have been me, you And it would have been way better. That movie, I... Okay, Raymond Massey did an incredible job. He and did. he was so great. But this movie would have been better with Boris Karloff, period. I, th- I think... I, I've heard, like, mixed reaction to that of just, like, Boris Karloff would have been great, or Raymond Massey makes the Boris Karloff joke work even more. Yeah, I guess there is a point, because there is a lot of jokes about him looking like Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. It might not have played as well him actually being Boris Karloff. I do see that. It might have been a little bit too ridiculous for a film audience. I feel like a theater mm-hmm. audience was a little more inclined There's to giggle. Distance. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I made this point of like, because it's the stage, there's a different culture at that time specifically between stage and screen. I think it's even more prominent today in some respects because you, you discern theater from film. So you have a stage joke, you have a stage play joking about a movie that then gets brought into a movie. It's a layer upon layer upon layer that I don't know if the audience of the era would have yeah, been on board meta with. Yeah, meta wasn't really a word back then. They didn't really grasp. Yeah, and this film like lightly grazes meta. Like it's not emaciated in it. Yeah, this isn't this isn't a Kevin Williamson script. This is yeah. <laughs> this and the Epstein's were very funny and very self aware, and their humor permeates that throughout movies like Casablanca. This film, I think, reigns it in quite appropriately. And we reveal that Jonathan and Einstein are on the run because they've killed a Mr. Spinazzo. <laughs> um, and to Who's which, in the trunk of their car. Yeah, and to which when Martha and Abby fi- later find out about him, they go like, I knew he must have been a foreigner. <laughs> <That's>, which <laughs> they don't is, want any foreigners in their basement. Which they is, go on a big rant about that. Which is a weird xenophobic yeah. thing that is very appropriate for people of their age and of yeah. the era. <laughs> but right. um, Which again, does lay into the whole isolationist argument thematic-wise and yeah. whatnot. But this one, they, they come in and they they he sees Abby and Martha and, and they don't recognize him at first and he slowly reveals like I see you still wearing the brooch from that uh, grandmother grandfather gave you or grandmother I think grandmother because grandmother. then the next line is that Aunt Martha you're wearing your collar high I see you're still wearing your high collars to cover where grandfather burned you with acid yeah exactly so they obviously had a traumatic fucking childhood yeah too. very much so they they were they were abused of sorts and Einstein is the one who's done the plastic surgery to make him look different because he say he saw the same picture that 
that Abby and Martha saw. And he was very drunk when he did the surgery. Yeah, he just he had just seen Frankenstein, dug it real hard, and was like, you know, I could do that. I was both depressed but also inspired by James Whale's brilliant work in Frankenstein, and that's why I did it. Johnny, please don't kill me. <laughs> like, the poor guy just wants to not get killed by his partner in crime. Right. And he, I, you know, like this is like Jonathan's this counter to Mortimer, like this, like the, 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 the ultimate bad versus the ultimate good in the family. And I, I, I love seeing kind of the mirror, the mirror that affects itself between Jonathan and Mortimer when they interact with each other, because the insanity runs in both of them, but you're watching the diametric opposite oppositions like mm -hmm. at work here. And Jonathan, resides himself to stay in the house and have a meal and intrude greatly on Abby and Martha's plans for a funeral later yeah, that trying night. trying to work out some funeral plans they, right now. We had, Jonathan, dear. Do you know nice how to long have... it took him to get into those clothes? A long time. A long time. Yeah. <laughs> because we get, the, oh my God, that the, we're going to get to it, but that reveal of them in their morning outfits too. Fuck, that is a brilliant reveal yeah. with the music cue. Mm -hmm. I, I I was talking about how Max Steiner kind of Mickey Mouse's this score. A lot of it is actually like pop culture has pop culture reference or tied to it or like thematic undertones. So it's using a lot of pre-existing music, but it does it so beautifully. Yeah. Um, and we get Jonathan. They're trying to get rid of the body of Spinazzo, and they reside themselves to. Um, stay in the house until Abby and Martha fall asleep and then they can bring the body in through the window that where the window seat is placed. And they, they learn about the lock and a perfect place to put Mr. Spinazzo because Teddy is very, very interested in showing them the, Pan the, the Panama Canal, specifically Einstein <laughs> because he looks like General Goffles. <laughs> And he he shows him a picture like this is you and me, General. And he goes, "My, how I've changed!" But it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. You see, his Teddy Roosevelt is aware of Teddy Roosevelt in the present and in the future. He's a time traveler. Time, cousin Teddy's oh a gosh, time traveler. I've never thought about that, but yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> He's it's it's like Doc Brown going like the future is what you make of it. He does the same thing, but except he just thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt the whole yeah. time. <laughs> And we get them uh, bringing the body in after he sends them all up to bed. And that's when we turn out the lights mm -hmm. and we see Capra's mastery at work with this set. Now, we've talked about this house being a set and a character at the same time. There's another film that was shot after this film, but released before this film that used this exact same house set. And it is none other than the Jack Benny motion picture George Washington slept here. Oh, really? The movie, which, as we talked about in our previous episode on the subject, uh, about a, uh, a, a married couple that buys a house that George Washington supposedly slept in and renovated. It's a house renovating movie. Um, and that set and the way it was designed was key to an Oscar nomination for best set deck or for best, uh, for best art direction mm. in 1943. This film uses the house in a different way. It's very specific as you were talking about to the details of everything that would be in there. And what, what, what differentiates it is how Capra uses it through lighting schemes 
and Expressionist Shadows. Yes. So when the lights go out, the only light that's present apart from a source light that comes from one room, the big key light that's hitting Raymond Massey in the face up at the top level of the stairs Mm -hmm. is light that is pushing through the door. The door in the basement. Do you know where I saw this imagery in to a modern degree? Remember when E.T. is in the shed and the light's pushing out? Mm -hmm. There's a shot where they're right outside of that door that has the little door window. That reminded me of when E.T. is is, uh, hiding out in there and bouncing the ball back. Um, And we get them, uh, we we see them bringing in the body. Prior to that, uh, Cousin Teddy brings down the body (laughs) <laughs> of Mr. Hodgkins. Okay, so I have a fun story. I've been waiting for us to get to this part <gasps> All of the right. movie because I have a fun story. Fun story time. Um, this is what you should not do in a play. So I'm backstage. At this point in time, Martha and Abby are not on stage. Right. They're back doing their thing. Intermission's coming up. So I'm not anywhere near the stage. <laughs> we have a dead body. He's the freshman. The dead body is downstairs talking and hitting on the makeup girls and misses his cue. What? And so Teddy is like, oh, I guess I already moved the body. <laughs> and then he goes downstairs. Don't miss your cue, kids. No. Especially when you only have one scene. Look, it was the only time we see the dead body and he was not there. The romance with the makeup lady can wait. I know. <laughs> what you have to be focused on. That- that whole like 10 minutes of my life kind of haunts my dreams. You never want to miss a cue, uh, especially when you only got one job. This is why romance in the theater don't work. <laughs> this is why you should never try to fi- fall in love with somebody in the same medium you work in. <laughs> don't shit where you eat, kids. Yeah. <laughs> I want that. I want a picture. I want a drawing of you as as Aunt Martha <laughs> saying that out loud. <laughs> I'll have to send you. I do still have pictures of that. Oh Aunt my! Martha. I'll send them to you. Oh, that's dope. I love it. <laughs> They're not cute. No, <laughs> They're not cute. I didn't know how to do old old age makeup at the time. Blending was not a thing. It was it was a rough time. Yeah, and so. Um, and by the way, we should establish that Jonathan is resigning himself to stay in the house, and they're like, "This is, this is your, uh, uh, this is our home, and you can't stay here." And he basically threatens Abby and Martha, going yeah. like, "You know how disagreeable I could be as a yeah. boy." <laughs> this, uh, it's like the Raymond Massey is super tall, and he, he's very his physicality, intense. yeah, like it matches Karloff. That's the one thing I will say. He, th- these, those, those two are matched up in that specific way. I think the key difference between him and Karloff would be you'd get a, a, a somewhat pulled back element from Karloff, whereas Massey is really trying to pull off a Karloff. Yeah. And so he's kind of laying into the more sinister moments Karloff would give you when he's playing like a villain, like a um, uh, like a um, uh, uh, like the villain in the Black Cat. You'd have like those kind of like more sinister moments. Karloff, I think, would pull it back a little bit, but they, uh, they, they try to get the body and and through the window, and they stumble around, and noise is made that basically wakes up Abby and Martha when they turn on the lights. You see that they're in their morning dresses, and you hear a funeral march cue yes. from Max Steiner, and it's also because. Uh, Elaine has snuck into the house and she 
discovers she, she is also being awoken by all this commotion and she yeah. sees people that she thinks are breaking into their house their yeah house. and so she um jo- einstein goes like it's okay johnny and he points to the fact that he's hidden the body in the window seat and uh jonathan becomes suspicious of elaine he wants to take Elaine down to the cellar. Yeah, he starts manhandling her pretty fucking hard. Yeah, like very brutally. Like yeah. Priscilla Lane's in danger. But then that's when Abby and Martha come down and she he proclaims that she's a sneak thief. And this is when we get Mortimer coming back in after already gone, going to the doctor to get a signature and warning him specifically that if he visits the ants, don't drink anything there. Mm. Um, don't tell them you're lonely either. And um, And then that's where we get... Mortimer seeing that Jonathan is back and he doesn't recognize him at first. And then he goes, where'd you get that face? Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way he delivers it. Like he is just absolutely fantastic in that moment. And he, they get into a standoff about who's going to stay in the house. And yeah, their tension is very palpable. Yeah. And meanwhile, Mortimer is resigning himself to sit on the sleep on the window seat for the rest of his life (laughs) to protect this secret. And as Elaine is just crying. And then finally he goes like, Oh, hello, darling. What'd you get? (laughs) I, I love his obliviousness. Throughout the movie where he's trying to catch up with everything. Like he's just he's trying to catch up to every single he's moment. He's a few steps behind mentally this entire movie. Yeah. He is not present at all. Yeah. And we get the we we come to the part of the the movie where everybody's skeletons are about to become unfurled mm-hmm. because they're trying to get Mr. Simonazzo down there. And Mortimer, in all of the confusion as people are leaving the stage or or the set, I should say, um, opens up the window seat again amid all the chaos and discovers a different body, a different body, another body. And he brings in Abby to confirm it. And she goes, that's not one of ours. She's like, we are, we're not going to claim that one. We will not bury a complete stranger next to I our know gentleman. They're so upset that there's this rando in their house that they did not kill. They like they in in he I at that point in the movie when I I remember when I first saw that movie at that point I think my my head was in my lap howling. Yeah, no, Be- it's because so good. it's just it's just so perfect. It's just. Ugh, I love it. We won't be bearing a. We won't be bearing them next to a string. I just. I'm sorry. This I just love that, that dialogue. Yeah. I was talking about earlier. We're slowly. We're not really slowly anymore. We're very rapidly picking up the momentum to the climax of this movie. Yeah, and then that's where we and get. You can feel. You can feel it. The pace quickens. And that's when Jonathan finds out, or Jonathan goes to cover the window seat as Mortimer does as well. And that's when Mortimer realizes that Jonathan's the one responsible for the body in the window seat. Mm. And he gives him a chance to leave. And, and he goes like, I'm look, uh, you're a Brewster. So I'm going to give you a chance to get out of here. This is the only that you can't ask for more than that. And I love how even with the worst brother, he's still like willing to give the other brother a chance to escape Mm -hmm. such a weird like commitment to family in this movie vin diesel would love this movie (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) 
Yeah, you can't turn in your ants because family. Look, Jonathan, I know you're a killer, but you're family. Well, I think... Ho- okay, this is might be a hot take, but I feel like Hollywood goes out of its way to give extra compassion in families on screen that I don't actually think happens in real life. No, no, because no, Because no. there's like a reward out for him. Yeah, no. So, I mean, if this was a real life family, I guarantee 99% of the time, mm-hmm. um, especially when you don't have a great relationship with that sibling, you're probably going to turn him in. Yep. He gave him a lot more grace than he should, ever should have. Yeah. And we're about to see that, like, at a certain point, he has a limit to that because O'Hara enters again and he meets Mortimer Brewster for the first time and he realizes, say, a dramatic critic, now's the time to pitch my play <laughs> that I've been writing while being a cop this whole time. Yeah. Which is basically a semi-autobiographical play that he's pitching, essentially. Yes. In fact, maybe it's even a full-blown autobiographical play. Jack Carson is great in this movie. Yeah. Uh, really he funny. is fantastic. He's an actor that we'll talk about later on as we go along because he's in a lot of great films and he was friends with Clark Gable, so a lot of uh, fun connection there. But that's when basically Mortimer um, is still trying to push Jonathan out the door and then Jonathan... Because he realizes, he learns through that point that Abby and Martha are the ones responsible for the killings. And we get a comparison kill count. We did kind of skip over a really fun, I think, kind of a funny scene. They're getting ready to take, this is just a few moments before that. They're trying to take the body down to the basement and they're just like chuckling on the stairs that these two old ladies are going to have bodies yes. in their oh, basement. Oh, yeah, because it's a jo- like a clever joke on my aunts. Yeah, I'm just going to, the, these two old biddies are going to live in a dead body, with de- a dead body in their basement. Yeah, and which, I just think that's such a funny little scene there. Yeah, and also, can we talk about the, the, the cellar door really quick? quickly especially when all the lights are out i forgot to mention this but when teddy's taking the body down Mm. that's a great expression shot that i was like if criterion gets this in their collection i want that to be the cover with a little sign that says this way to panama (laughs) oh my gosh that's so funny that'd be so great yeah the lighting in that whole scene is just top notch it's remarkable and so anyway as i was as, as we were at they find out that Abby and Martha are the ones responsible for the killings and Einstein and Jonathan um, are, are shocked. And Einstein is like, it's great. They're just as good as you. You've got 12. They got 12. I've got 13. No, 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 Johnny, you've got 12. And then Johnny goes through the kill list and I wrote this down verbatim, which means (laughs) I also technically wrote a Jonathan Brewster wiki fan, fan wiki page. First, there was Spinazzo. Then the first in London, two in Johannesburg, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne, two in San Francisco, one in Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona? The gas station. Oh, yeah, that's right. Three in Chicago and one in South Bend, Indiana. One in South Bend cannot count, Johnny. He already died of pneumonia. He wouldn't have died of pneumonia if I hadn't shot him. (laughs) No, 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 Johnny, you cannot count South Bend. You've got 12. They got 12. Well, then all I need is a 13th victim. And I know exactly who it is because he resigns himself to kill Mortimer at this point. Yes. He wants to kill the the, the 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 craw on his side for years. Which I don't understand. I, you don't get nearly a, as a malicious vibe from him. I don't. 
they don't go into a deep dive in their childhood, but the abuser has always seemed to be Jonathan, not Mortimer. I think there has to be some jealousy on Jonathan's because part. Because there, there is a big reveal at the end that we haven't gotten to, but I think that that has something to do with it. Yes, exactly. And not only that, just the idea of him being normal versus not being normal. I think mm, yeah. I think that plays as a generic trope, but you're right. The revelation that we get to at the end, I think, heavily plays into that specifically. Um, but um, at this time also, Mortimer's outside um, introducing Teddy to the doctor, who also has to sign off on the papers. Mm-hmm. And he uh, Teddy takes him on a tour of Arlington, which is just the cemetery the outside. The cemetery in their backyard. <laughs> yeah. I love that it's Arlington Cemetery. Arlington is beautiful this time of year. Yep. And he says it's Dr. And he calls him Doctor the doctor, Dr. Livingston. And then Doc goes, Dr. Livingston. And Mortimer goes, well, that's what he presumes. That's kind of a, it's a reference to Stanley and Livingston where you go Dr. Livingston, I presume. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's where that comes from. That was a movie based off of a book. Mm-hmm. Yes, moving on. And um, Mortimer reunites with Elaine while this tour is going on. And he goes like, oh, darling, I'm... insanity runs in my family. It practically gallops. <laughs> and we have the whole line about like the Brewsters have been insane ever since the first one came off the Mayflower. You know how the Indians used to scalp the settlers? My ancestors scalped the Indians. <laughs> Just... Which that line's. Does not play as well these days, but still get it's a, a chuckle. I, I think it's a I think it's a good giggle for insanity. <laughs> like yeah. it's a it's a good switch up line. Yeah, I know it doesn't work today, but I think you can. It, it's it's so harm. Funny. It's harmless. And the um uh, Teddy is giving the tour, and he goes like, and um, and I'll run for a third term, but I won't win, and that will be the last of the Roosevelts in the White House. And the doctor goes, "That's what you think." And he goes, "Well, <laughs> if the people insist." That is a reference to Teddy Roosevelt saying in his, like when he after he won his second his first election, really because he um, was sworn into office after his predecessor died. Mm. Roosevelt said after he was elected to his second term that I would not seek a third term, but then he did run for a third term, which people saw as a renege on that because nobody had ever really run for a third term in the history of the United States. As we know, another Roosevelt would go on to four terms as president. Mm -hmm. So it's a very like, I love how there's a lot of historical in jokes relating to Teddy Roosevelt. Like it's a nice, like a little educational tool at the same time. Absolutely. This should be a movie for your podcast. Dude, I was definitely going to do this movie for my podcast. Oh my God. This is edutainment, man. Yeah. Edutainment. Indeed. Um, and uh, meanwhile, Abby and Martha are also fighting with John on who's going to go into the uh, who's going to be buried in the cellar because they we do hear them committing the service, doing the services through mm-hmm. a sound out screen. Mm-hmm. Capra's really good at having things happen off screen through sound that just add atmosphere to everything. And it certainly helps with the fight scene at the end. Yes. Um, but they uh, they say, like, it would be a terrible thing to bury a good Methodist with a foreigner. Right. <laughs> like, they're just... The de- their meticulousness is ridiculously great, and Einstein and Jonathan get the body into the into the lock, and then there's this shot of Jonathan as a silhouette crouching in on Einstein, who's had it. He wants to go home, and if they're gonna kill somebody, we better make it quick. No, I think this calls for the Melbourne method, <laughs> which takes two hours. So it's just the next Saw movie. And then he just asks, he's like, he's still going to be dead at the end of it. Why do we have to make it two hours? Why can't you make it two seconds? Because he has this 
decades of built up, pent up random aggression towards his brother. Yeah. And as they everybody comes back into the house, Teddy uh Teddy has to sign the papers and John Mortimer gets him to sign them by calling it a secret uh it's a secret signing and he's like uh that's why uh that's the only way to arts outsmart the other fellow. Who's the other fellow? That's the secret. Oh, very clever. I'll have to get my signing closed. You've already got them on. <laughs> that's another time where they're like, you did that already, man. You got them on. Yeah, you're good. You're you good, don't need bro. another cabinet meeting. You, hey, you're the hero Brooklyn deserve, yeah. <laughs> that needs but doesn't deserve. Um, and uh, he uh, signs the document and puts it underneath the door with the signal call being the bugle playing parts of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> then there's a knock on the door. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like the again, you were talking about like the quick the quick timing of it is just incredible. And Einstein then tries to warn Mortimer of what's going on. And I'm gonna lay in a clip now of how Cary Grant and Laurie play this scene. But look, Mr. Brewster, please. You've just been married. You have a nice little wife waiting for you. Please go now. Please. Tell me, don't those plays you see all the time teach you anything? Oh, stop it. Don't get me on the subject of plays. I've got a lot on my mind now. I've got to wait here for Mr. Witherspoon. At least people in plays act like they got sense. Oh, you think so? Did you ever see anybody in a play act like they got intelligence? How can somebody be so Well, have my job for a few nights. Listen to me, brother. When you get out of prison, you have yourself wheeled over to the Garrick Theater. There's a play there that's a honey. It's so bad it'll still be running when you get out. Now, in it, there's a man. Now, listen to this. Now, he knows he's in the house with murderers, mm -hmm. so he ought to know he's in danger. He's even been warned to get out of the house. And does he go? Yes. No, he doesn't. He stays. <laughs> this fellow doesn't even have sense enough to be scared. No. Or to be on his guard. No, no. The murderer even invites him to sit down. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you think he does? Oh, I don't know. He sits down. Isn't that what He deliberately pulls up a chair <laughs> like that, and he sits down in it. Isn't that great? <laughs> So there he is, all waiting to be trussed up and gagged. <laughs> what do you think they used to truss him up with? What? The curtain cord. <laughs> but didn't he see him get it? See him get it? No, the silly chump sits down with his back toward the murderer. All he has to do is look around, but does he? No. Yeah. Look, don't you see Brother Heidelberg in a play, or even in a movie for that matter, a fellow never sees or hears anything. No, that's right. But, but what does he do? What does he do? Well, the big chump sits there. This fellow is supposed to be bright. He sits there. Now, get a load of this. Look. Look at the attitude. <laughs> Large as life. He sits there waiting to be tied up and gagged. <laughs> the big dog. <laughs> In this, we've just heard that he explains what he saw in a play, how somebody is so stupid as to stick around during a, a moment where he's clearly going to be bound and gagged, and Cary Grant gets bound and gagged. <laughs> um, and that's where we get the gif that everybody loves using of Cary Grant with a sock in his face. Yep. What the gif doesn't show, obviously, is the like the intricate knot <laughs> that Cary Grant yeah. is in. If he moves his neck the wrong way... He strangles himself. Like I, I think that's the line. Yeah. So he, it's like a, it's a self-tightening knot essentially. Yes, exactly. And the more he wiggles and moves around, the tighter the knot gets. Exactly. So he will slowly strangle himself. Yeah, and he, I think that when Jonathan is laying out that toolkit 
I love about this movie is that there's technically not really an on-screen death. Like no. th- there's not re- there's no on-screen there's death. There's dead bodies everywhere, but no one actually dies. There is use of violent imagery, but there is no violent action. Correct. Apart from Jonathan here in this moment attempting to kill Mortimer. Like that's the most violent anything actually really gets. And then, well, I guess the fight scene, but that's comic violence, not horror violence. Yeah, that's more like slapstick comedy violence. Yeah, exactly. And then we um, we get him just about to kill them before Einstein needs a drink. But he's like, oh, there's some mandatory wine over there. he's a raging alcoholic. He is. He's an alcoholic that is beset by trauma of mm. seeing people die and having to do all these surgeries. Mm. It's a sympathetic one. Yeah. It's one of those rare moments where alcohol can be treated with sympathy in a golden age Hollywood movie and not get like not get tossed around by the censors because yeah. there was this, especially during Prohibition. But anyway, long story short, he gets the elderberry wine and Jonathan and him are about to drink it. Mortimer forcibly but reasonably keeps his mouth shut <laughs> uh and uh jonathan stops it to be like a toast to my brother who brought me back to Br- i realized it was you who brought me back to brooklyn <laughs> like no you needed to get rid of a body <laughs> but he's that insane and just before that at the one hour 33 one second mark uh the bugle calls off at midnight so if you play it in a specific fashion you can do this at new year's eve by the oh way my God. <laughs> That's a a lot of work. Well, (laughs) But yeah, I guess you could get it to time it so he plays the bugle at midnight. Yeah, exactly. It would be a perfect way to spend New Year's Eve. But um, no, and they resolve to then do the quick method because that noise is going to wake up everybody. And Mm -hmm. now we get to the climax. O'Hara comes back in, sees Cary Grant bound and gagged. (laughs) And instead of rightly untying him promptly, he goes, Nah, wait a minute. You're going to hear my play. Right? <laughs> You're going to hear... Such an opportunist. <laughs> fuck the police. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, think you, I think you have a perfection in O'Hara in that small character. Capra's really good at side characters. We're going to get James Gleason later, um, who plays the lieutenant. Mm. and he used him a bunch he used edward Everett horton a lot who plays uh dr witherspoon he's good at side characters capra is very good at this he makes side characters flourish it's one of the reasons why peter laurie is so great in this movie not just because it's peter laurie but he gives him moments to stretch that's one of the strokes of genius that i think capra it makes him a perfect fit for this movie even though he's never directed a horror movie because he's no, he knows what the core of it is. The core of this is comedy. Horror is a dressing. He knows how yeah. to, he knows how to do set dressing. Mm-hmm. He gets to the core of comedy and the sergeant and his fellow officers come in and see O'Hara, you know, goofing around. And at this point, Jonathan was trying to kill O'Hara, but Einstein knocks him out with his shoe and the sergeant recognizes him as the person that's wanted in in in, in Indiana um, because they got a picture of that recent face. And 
they alert Jonathan after they get him woken up that he's about to be arrested. And he's just like, so I've been ratted out, have I? <laughs> well, if I'm going to do that, I might as well do some turning in of my own. There are 13 bodies in the cellar and I'm going to show them to you. And Mortimer's trying to contain it. And uh, Sergeant is just like, go down to the cellar. O'Hara. He doesn't know what to believe. He doesn't know what There's to believe. There's too much chaos. There's too much nonsense. Mm-hmm. He's just like, I'm going to go check everything out and we'll see what turns up actual reality. Right. And then this is where we get the fight sequence. Yes. At the at the hour 38 minute 16 second mark, we get, gee, do I have to, Sarge? Look at that puss. He looks like Boris Karloff. And Jonathan snaps. Jonathan fucking snaps and rages over towards O'Hara. We get a lot of a fight sequence that is not seen on screen. A lot of chair smashing for quick moments, but most of it is centered on the beleaguered Mortimer Brewster. Mm -hmm. Just going like, no, no, no. I got the paper signed. I'm done. No, go ahead. Fight, fight. There is an awkward cut where he goes, no, no, go away. And then the cut goes to O'Hara and he goes like, this would make a great moment for your play. Like it's a weird cut where I feel like something might have been trimmed down uh, and they just yeah, didn't look at possibly. the they didn't look at like how it would mesh up with everything. Yeah. We get the fighting scene and then this is where we get Dr. Witherspoon coming up but also the lieutenant. That's the fight scene is like one of my favorite ways to kind of film a fight scene in a comedy. I love that. Oh, you just see like an arm of a chair fly by and you see someone's shoe fly by the other way and you just see glimpses and it's mostly auditory. Mm-hmm. That's I think it sometimes it's a little bit more of that what you hear yeah. versus what you see. You get a little bit more from it because you get that in your mind. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I'd have to imagine it helps with budget as well. That too. <laughs> but but there's but there is this I agree. There is this element of watching that and hearing it and seeing these quick cuts, which like those chair smashes are fucking brutal. Yeah. Like and mm-hmm. him getting pulled across. I, I think it's like he gets pu- pushed into the window seat, essentially like that. Yeah, that is like it's I think it's you have to have come from the Max Senate Hal Roach studios to know how this works, which Capra was a gag man for both of those studios. Mm-hmm. He saw what silent comedy was. He's his first early efforts were silent comedies. He knew exactly how to stage what he needed to out of this. But as he's evolved as a filmmaker, he's learned how to pull back. So I think that that's like a testament to what he's able to do with this. Um, and then the lieutenant comes in and they're trying to suss everything out. Teddy comes down and goes like, but there are 13 bodies in the cellar. Like, who are you? I'm President Roosevelt. <laughs> I'm, the- I'm Theodore Roosevelt, which is like. He says, no, I'm president of the United States. Exactly. Which, by the way, there was a line earlier where Jonathan uh is telling Teddy to go to bed and he goes, who are you? And he goes, I'm Woodrow Wilson. Go to bed. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> that's a great, that is a really good one. That's a testament to Massey going like, yeah. I'm Woodrow Wilson. Go to bed. <laughs> I love it. It's perfect. And then we get, we get the realization that like the Lieutenant goes like, ah, oh, no, you, you can't commit Teddy. These papers are signed Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah. They're not signed by, no, the problem is that they're not signed by a doctor, mm-hmm. by an actual doctor, like yeah. an MD physician. Well, yeah, but the other one is this voluntary commitment page. They have to get Teddy Roosevelt. They get, oh, his actual name. Yeah. yeah. His actual signature. And so they get him to sign it as, as Teddy, T- Ted Brewster by going like, don't, don't you see 
I, I wrote this down verbatim. He goes like, "Take uh, Brewster is a code word for Roosevelt. Take Brewster and remove the B, and what do you got? Rooster. And what does a rooster do? Crows. Crows. And where do you hunt in Africa? On the veldt. There you are. Crows veldt. <laughs> and, and then the lieutenant's like, oh, that was pretty good. Can you do that again for me? Goes, no. Can we get a take two on that? <laughs> I and and he does try to he get Teddy goes to pack and he looks at Dr. Witherspoon and he goes is he trying to move into the White House before I leave who Taft <laughs> he thinks he's Taft yeah um, but he he convinces him to go up and help him pack like president you know um and witherspoon by the way has already pitched a play to mortimer in this time everyone's pitching plays to mortimer in the mortimer in this movie yeah and he's already had to re-establish the dignity of a sanitarium to the cab driver who who when he's engaged by dr witherspoon to take teddy to the sanitarium he goes i knew this would end up in the nut house <laughs> and he goes we prefer to call it a rest home <laughs> like <laughs> um and the this is when we get at the hour 47 minute 28 second mark the fourth charge i missed a third one in there but the charges are fucking beautiful they're so funny they're just they're the cream of the crop with here and we get abby and martha uh uh coming down to see that teddy's being a takeaway they won't allow to be separated from teddy so they want to go to the sanitarium with him Cary Grant is trying to convince Dr. Witherspoon that they can voluntarily commit. And that's when they bring up the whole 13 bodies thing. And then Abby and Martha just come clean. But there are 13 bodies in the cell. <laughs> Everybody's telling the truth. <laughs> but because the truth is so absurd and it's stranger than fiction, mm -hmm. no one believes them. Yeah. And at the hour 49 minute, 18 second mark, Cary Grant blows the bugle and charges on his own. Mm -hmm. And um, this is where we get him going like, you know, like, yes, there are 13 bodies in the cellar and 100 bodies in the attic. <laughs> um, or like, and Abby and Martha go like, we hold funeral services for them and put flowers on the graves. Oh, sure, I put neon lights on mine. <laughs> <laughs> the insanity of all of this convinces them, all right, these two are cuckoo. They can go commit themselves to the sanitarium. Um, but they're like, oh, no, we need a doctor to sign. And then that's when we see Dr. Einstein trying to leave. He's literally trying to sneak out. Mm -hmm. Everyone's doing their own thing. This is his perfect moment to just slip out the front door while no one's looking. But then someone sees him. Yeah. And he goes like, would you sign the papers for us? And he just kind of begrudgingly agrees because he thinks it'll help him get out of here quicker. Uh -huh. My girlfriend watched this movie for the first time, as I said um uh, earlier in the episode her favorite character is dr einstein it should be it's and a great character it's a great character and the the biggest laugh i heard out of her which was um uh be like are you are, are you leaving and dr einstein goes yes please <laughs> yeah <laughs> that poor man he just wants to leave um and his then face at the end the whole when when the lieutenant gets off the phone he's like there's a phone call and the lieutenant's literally describing Peter Lori as he's standing in front of him and his eyes just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally he's like, thanks doc and shakes his hand. Yeah. And meanwhile, <laughs> as he's leaving, he's able to get away. Scott clean because the lieutenant 
actively gives the description of him into the point of speaks German. Oh no. <laughs> and then he's just allowed to go. He's just allowed to leave and be free. Yeah. And it's cross cut. There's a moment cross cut here where Elaine approaches the house through the window and she has already heard about the revelation of 13 bodies in the cellar. Not in the window. Oh, well it's, she comes through the cellar. Well, yeah, but she hears the revelation through the window of like there are 13 bodies in the cellar well, yeah she's creeping it. out though as she's standing outside the window she hears it and then she's like yeah uh, yeah let's and, check this out and then she goes to the cellar yes exactly she, she enters through the outside cellar door mm-hmm. going in and this is where we get the revelation that abby and martha are worried that he is signed as next to kin because mortimer is not a brewster he is the son of a already pregnant cook who got pregnant through a sea uh, a sea cook, and the brother, their brother, married the cook because they wanted to keep the cook around because she was such a nice girl. <laughs> and and she was pregnant, and they were trying to be charitable to the baby and give the baby a house. Exactly. And now he's family. And in the play, the line is, "I'm a bastard." Yeah. Here it's, "I'm the son of a sea cook." Yeah. Which I, I'm not gonna lie, I like that better. I like the I'm a son of a sea cook better than I'm a bastard. In our high school production, we changed it to sea cook. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah. cool. Because they weren't too excited about no, bastard. No, I think you could. Oddly enough, I feel like in a high school play, you might be able to get away with it now. Yeah. Pro- well, I mean, this was like 17 years ago now, more than that, maybe. Um, and I'm from Kansas. Christian Kansas folk, yeah, don't like a lot of GDs and bastards. You know, you know? Our, you know, but our our high school did thoroughly modern Millie, which deals with white slavery. So I yeah. feel like the times have evolved enough. Yeah, <laughs> like we did Little Shop of Horrors too, which actively has domestic abuse. Oh, you did too. Yeah, that was my first video gig. Um, they did were they weren't gonna do um anything for the somewhere that's green moment and so i suggested i would make a small little video of our um of our two leads in the theater lobby and i put uh saran wrap around a couch in the theater lobby for the plastic on the furniture to keep it neat and clean and i would have to i was a set i was running sets running the flats down there on the set Mm -hmm. and when that moment would come up i'd have to go through the side entrance of the theater where nobody could see me go up to the tech room make sure the video played hear the reception which it would always get this laugh because nobody's expecting it on the stage and then i'd run back down to continue running flats so sounds like high school theater yeah yep yep you're you're worked to your core yeah that's actually where i saw a lot of martin scorsese movies for the first time too because we had a little like dungeon for all the tools and so i would be reorganizing those while watching last temptation of christ oh my gosh that's so funny i love that um but anyway yeah so he's the son of a sea cook and uh it, this this solves the whole issue, but Elaine has discovered those bodies. So um, how does he solve this issue? He just picks her up, kisses her, and keeps his lips on her lips as he ch- carries Until her she out goes, the door. This is my favorite oh, Mortimer. She goes, oh, Mortimer. The orgasmic. Like- <laughs> this, she is just, she came. She's come. <laughs> she did. Like, she was such in a tither, but... One fucking kiss from Cary Grant, and she literally melted in his arms. Be honest. Be fucking honest. I would, in a <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> you... I would also melt in his arms immediately. All right. I normally don't allow this, but I will allow you in my special time machine to come back. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna drop you off, and you can get kissed by Cary Grant. Meanwhile, I'm going to go back and bring Jack Benny to the present. Okay, I like that. To save just comedy. Just me back up on the way. <laughs> exactly. I don't really want to get involved with him. I just want to get a kiss and leave. Yeah. <laughs> he was kind of a dramatic dude. You just want a quickie before you Yes. <laughs> I want to see what happens. Aaron Aaron Mullane wanting a quickie from Cary Grant. I'm not the only one. I, no, no, no. Are you kidding? <laughs> Truth be told. There's, there's a list. A- apologies to my girlfriend. Totally would Definitely. too. <laughs> Definitely. There's some. Okay. This is kind of on topic, kind of off topic. But my co-host of my podcast and I. I've talked about this a lot. There's a certain suave masculinity of male actors from the 30s and 40s Mm -hmm. that I genuinely just don't see today. No. That I can step into a room and literally stop the clock sort of like cool. I just don't, I can't name anyone that makes me feel like that, like those guys did. I think that it's, I think there's better distinction. Um, It's not to say that every actor today blends together necessarily, but I do think that uh, I know I, a lot of these actors blend together. Yeah, I I think that I wish that there was something better to distinguish them that would give me a reason to enjoy rom-coms more because I feel like on the whole I don't anymore. I saw The Holiday for the first time recently. That had some distinguishable enough actors, but I remember a time where Jude Law would blend in with other people and I'm like, Okay. The most distinguishable, oddly enough, is Jack Black because you're not expecting him to be in that tender rom com. Yeah. And he's but he's there and he's yeah. crushing it with Kate Winslet. Um watch the holiday, guys. It's really great. Got a lot of Golden Age Hollywood in it. Um but yeah, and then this is where we get the end. The cabbie um <laughs> is engaged in the uh, uh armor am- amorous nature too. And he uh he's trying to get Brewster to focus and he goes, But Mr. Brewster, and he goes, Oh I'm not Mr. Brewster, I'm the son of a sea cook. <laughs> and then the cabbie goes i'm not a cab driver i'm a coffee pot and that's where we get the end and then there's oh. a big swell of music and uh, the end yes this movie was a wonderfully successful hit as we said before the profits that capra would receive from them would unfortunately become becoming too late as this film premiered on september 1st 1944 months after the stage play had closed its doors. Mm-hmm. This movie sat on the shelf for three years. Um, the movie garnered a box office total of four million seven hundred eighty-four thousand, which is a nice profit, especially considering oh, yeah. the budget, which is kept pretty low. Um, the reviews consensus today by Rotten, Toma- Rotten Tomatoes is at eighty-one percent. That's a fucking atrocious number. Seriously, eighty-one percent. Fuck you, Rotten Tomatoes. This needs to be a hundred percent not even question variety said that despite the fact that the picture runs 118 minutes capra has expanded on the original play to sufficient extent to maintain a steady consistent pace which i'd agree i would agree as well exactly um the the i think that the reception of this film does definitely come out of a desire to escape one's problems Mm -hmm. a little bit and to kind of just get lost in a in a goofy comedy at this time and it's being released. We're at the end of war. People are tiring of wartime films and the morale films or propaganda films, as we were talking about earlier, they want escape. And Mm -hmm. this movie provides 
wonderful, wonderful escape. Now, we're not done with Mr. Karloff, though, because he was not only receiving royalties for this product up and at least up into 1957 when he revealed that knowledge of him being a primary an investor on This Is Your Life in 1957. Um, but he would get to play Jonathan Brewster on television. On January 5th, 1955, there was a 60-minute version uh, for CBS Television's series The Best of Broadway. Uh, Boris Karloff recreated it. Helen Hayes and Billy Burke played the ants. Peter Lorre and Edward Everett Horton returned as Einstein and Witherspoon. John Alexander also returned. He was John Alexander was best known for this movie. Mm-hmm. Karloff played him again in February 5th, 1962 for Hallmark Hall of Fame with Dorothy, Stri- Dorothy Strickney and Mildred Natwick playing the, the ants. Um, and, uh, I think that the television versions with Karloff are fun. The regret is, is that he's not in the motion picture. Mm-hmm. The, there is prestige attached to that. And I know that technically we're living in a realm right now where it doesn't really matter, but there is something about being in the adaptation of the role you originated on Broadway. Yeah. Like it's normal now for us to, to lift the Broadway actors into the movie version, mm-hmm. sometimes to detriment, as we're seeing with Dear Evan Hansen. Um, oh, let's not talk about that. We don't. I, I have some very strong opinions about Dear Evan Hansen. We're not here to talk about that. I, I, I that's heard, another two-hour episode. Man. Oh yeah, this isn't the Dear Evan Hansen podcast. <laughs> let's talk about a positive one, though. I think Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick coming back for the producers was like an essential. Phenomenal. You, you but as that. we, yeah, Mel Brooks is kind of a god on earth. Oh yeah, he graces he is. us with his talents. And that was no surprise. I think uh, a good audition for that movie. So when they switch out actors, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it isn't. I think Will Ferrell did a phenomenal job in that as, adaptation. Uh, as Franz Liebkin? Yes. yes. I actually, and I will. It was surprising, in fact. Mm-hmm. He's, um because uh, I, I, I do appreciate um Brad Oscars, because um, I've, I've never seen the show on stage, but I love the cast recording of the Broadway version. Yeah. And I love Brad Oscar. As Franz Liebkin, but Will Ferrell, when he when they go up to him in the first moment and they go like Franz Liebkin, I was never met of the Nazi party. I didn't even know. I I wasn't even in the war. I didn't even know there was a war. <laughs> like he 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 plays it to perfection. And yeah. when he's doing Habensika Hertha Deutsche Band, yeah, I love his choreography and yeah. the way he moves his body yeah. is fantastic. And of course, in that same one, you also have Gary Beach and Roger Bart reprising their roles. The late, great Gary uh, Beach, by the way. Yeah. Oh, did we? when did we lose him? We lost, Another, we lost him a, lot, a little over a year ago, I believe. Oh my yeah. gosh, I missed that one too. Yeah, God. R.I.P. Gary Beach, who played uh, Roger, R- Roger... Roger Dubri- Bart can't die. Ro- I can't handle that. Roger Bart is not allowed to die. No. We're keeping him in a freezer tube like Walt Disney. Yeah. <laughs> Which we've... As we've discussed in a recent Ballyhoo, did, did not happen. But, um, but no, Roger Bart needs to live. But bringing them back was yeah. wonderful choice, especially because I think I think Gary Beach steals the movie. The movie, yes, their duet, their song in that movie is "Keep It Gay." Yeah, still one of my favorite movie musical scenes of all time. I, they I, did a great job. I, we're going to like, this is like, people might already know this, but the pop culture booze guys and I are teaming up to do a Mel Brooks series. We're going to get you on to talk about the nice. movie, the musical version then. Cause okay, cool. that'd be perfect. But as a result of, um, arsenic and old lace though, Capra, this is Capra's last 
theatrical uh, narrative film before he goes off to war, does the Why We Fight series. When he comes back, he escapes from the studio system at large to form Liberty Liberty Films, and he makes It's a Wonderful Life. Clearly the more classic film in Capra's Mm -hmm. oeuvre, if not his masterpiece. Um, I think that this film should be considered in the same vein as Capra's overall oeuvre, because even though it doesn't fall in the same light as a Meet John Doe or a Smith or a Wonderful Life, there is something about it to watch within the respect of watching what Capra would have done before he made those idealistic films. Mm -hmm. You are watching a master return to his origin point in a lot of respects. Yeah. And clearly the imagery was influential in certain elements of It's a Wonderful Life because I've said this about Michael Bay because sometimes he'll do a film like a Transformers movie as a place to experiment with shots that he then brings into his non-franchise films. So there is stuff that he does uh, in uh, in certain films that'll find their way into like the 13 Hours movie, which I haven't seen, but I've seen clips of it where I'm like, that's the same stuff he was doing in Transformers mm-hmm. um, Age of Extinction um, or what he's what he'll bring to something like Pain and Gain. He, he finds a way to experiment. Pain and Gain is a phenomenal movie. That is Michael For Bay. For everyone, I mean, mm-hmm. okay, all right. That's Michael, Michael Bay movies. That movie is incredible. I li- we literally found that movie in a two dollar bin at Walmart and took it home and watched it. It was one of the greatest movies I've seen it's not in a, a while. I saw that movie <laughs> twice in theaters. I loved it. It was awesome. It's going to be on my 2013 film explosion list when we do a retro film because it's just fantastic. Oh my gosh, it's absurd. Yeah, but that, but that's what I mean. Like some people will do the franchise films as experimental points mm-hmm. for what they can do in another film, and you'll see that pop up within directors today. I'd argue that Capra took this time to figure out stuff he wanted to do down the line. Definitely. Because there's stuff that transplants and finds itself in later works too. Um, Especially adapting stage work further and doing more uh, and doing more stage related stuff. But as far as the legacy of this property itself, this was toured later on with Bella Lugosi in the role of Jonathan Brewster. And according to scholar Gary Rhodes, who writes a lot of Bella Lugosi books said that, the box office returns with Lugosi touring the same cities that Karloff did actually did better box office. Really? Okay. Fuck I mean... you, Karloff. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, there was never a rivalry, but if there was a rivalry, Bella won that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and the play continues to be resurfacing all over the place. Uh, 1998 in Oklahoma city, did a revival through UCO theatricals at the University of Central Oklahoma. Uh, there was a revival at the Dallas Theater Company in 2011. Several rep companies do this play constantly. This is a staple of high school theater. It is a staple. And, and brings well, it used to, to be. I genuinely have not seen a high school do the. Oh, I've been out in Colorado for almost a decade now, and I see all sorts of little high school posters around. I have not seen one high school do arsenic and old lace so if you're in the colorado theater community tell me where arsenic and old lace is happening because i'd like to go see it yeah as far as the legacy of this film's content being adapted i think that the merriment of the macabre is something you find a lot in tim burton films yeah um i would argue that the coen brothers style of humor has a lot to play into this element as well and something that i thought about 
movies in an old dark house with a fam- fucked up family finds itself in a lot of horror movies that have comedic elements such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ready or Not, You're Next, films like mm, this that yeah. have a decided comic tinge to them. And as we talked about, the meta humor in this film is strewn about. This lays the groundwork for meta films that come, yeah. such as New Nightmare and Scream and mm-hmm. Scream 2 and Scream 3 and Scream. We're getting another Scream movie in a couple weeks. Um, so They should have stopped making those movies when Wes Craven died. I, but we're not going to go into that. I agree, but I'm, <laughs> I'm very curious to see what the Ready or Not guys do with Scream with this new one. Because I loved Ready or Not. I mean, I'm going to keep watching them. Oh, yeah, I course. may not like them, but I'm going to keep watching them. It's like the Halloween franchise. You're hooked. <laughs> I also keep watching those movies. And I... D- you didn't like the reboot? I didn't. Well, it's not... The 2018 one wasn't terrible. But the, I, the one that just came out this past Halloween was not great, man. I That was I not lo- great. I loved it because it's a Michael Myers tone poem, <laughs> which shouldn't exist. <laughs> You shouldn't make a Michael Myers tone poem. No. I'm so glad they gave him the money to just do that. <laughs> but I get it. And the one thing about the Halloween kills that threw me was I've I've learned to accept it, but watching another person technically play Dr. Lewis <laughs> threw me yeah. off for a second. But I love that imagery. I love mm-hmm. that imagery of him at the front of the house. But yeah. um that's another movie with a fucked up family. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff happening in the house. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that concludes our talk on arsenic and old lace. Aaron, thank you so much for coming yeah. back to chat about this. Thanks for I, having me. I want you back. I think we need to find either another stage piece or something, something that's something that you're brimming to talk about that falls in line with your macabre sense of humor, or mm-hmm. even I'd, I'd love to come back and talk about. Uh, Abbott and Costello. I don't know how many that you've done. We've but only like, done one. We've only done which one. Which one was it? We did uh, Rita Ria, uh, which is a kind of a lesser known one. Uh, so Get That Ghost is one of my faves. Oh, yeah. Or if we want to go back and do a little meta ourselves, we can do Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Abbott. There's so many Abbott and Costello movies, man. Like We have a lot to choose from. I wanted to but pitch- Bud and Lou are... I attribute a lot of what I learned about comedy and my comedic tom- timing to Bud and Lou. I agree. And I think the one that I would love to get you for is Who Done It. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Who Done It. The radio mystery one mm-hmm. is one of my favorites of theirs. Um, and really quickly, let people know about your podcast and where yeah. they're going to be able to find it. Um, so I'm going to be posting everything on my own personal personal socials. So you can find me at Aaron Malane on Facebook, at Aaron Malane Official on Instagram, and Aaron Malane Official on TikTok. You can also find the podcast at... at uh, <laughs> I forgot the name of my podcast for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Required Viewing Pod on Instagram. Um, we haven't made a Facebook for that yet. We don't know how many uh, social media platforms the podcast is going to be on. We're going to be a little picky with it. So um, if you're on Instagram, find it on Instagram. If not, find me and I'll be posting a bunch of stuff. Yeah, put, well. it on, put it on the ones that don't exist yet. Be the Teddy Roosevelt of your own destiny yes, and just definitely. allude to things that haven't happened yet. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank and I, you. I look forward to the show. 
And I'm excited for you to be yet another contributor to the ever-expansive knowledge of film history. Yeah, man. Thank you very, very much yeah, for creating that show. And this is going to wrap it up for Yesteryear Ballyhoo this week. You can find out more about us on the back-end tags. On the upcoming episodes, we're going to have some interesting things going on. First of all, we will be talking about The Horn Blows at Midnight uh, with Cheryl Jones from Movies Made Me, uh, where we are going to talk about a movie that may or may not relate to the COVID situation, given its production. Mm, I don't know. You'll have to stay tuned with stuff that I dug up and was blown away by. Um, but we're also going to be doing more radio review on the show. We're going to be doing um, some more Jack discussions are coming up as well. Um, I will be doing some more musicals. Matt Willicks will be coming back to do a musical with us. A um, lot of stuff in the works, but until all of that, and until next time, folks, charge! This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.